Welcome to Blackbird episode number 67. My name is James, and today I am presenting to you an interview I did on Jacob Winograd's show, Daniel 3, Biblical Anarchy. We're talking about faith, we're talking about politics, kind of the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, if that gets your gears going. It gets a little bit personal, so if you have been craving some more of my own kind of takes on my life, you've got that in here. And in the next episode, it's going to be Jacob's appearance on my show. So listen to this one and then listen to the next one that comes out in a few days and you'll get the full picture of Jacob and me and our kind of way of talking with one another. I will let you know that we are friends. We've talked in person and online on Facebook and Messenger and all that stuff for several years. So we are pretty familiar with each other and the way that we think. So if you feel like these conversations get contentious at all, just know that it's completely friendly and we're we're definitely not like at odds or have animosity towards one another. There's no sponsor for this show. And I think I'm probably going to cut back on my use of sponsors. It hasn't been very profitable for me. And really, you guys who have subscribed to the show have provided me with much more income and probably <laughs> less annoyance for the other listeners than sponsors did. So, you know, if I come across helpful affiliate links or things like that, like Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, I'll always promote blackbirdpodcast.com slash classroom and Renegade University, Thad Russell's project, blackbird.com slash Renegade. If you sign up for those using my links, I'll get a couple of bucks. But otherwise, I think I'll probably hold off on sponsors, at least for the time being. If you would like to support the show, I really appreciate it. It's only $7 a month or $70 a year. Head to blackbirdpodcast.com slash subscribe to sign up there. I will put the link to the original YouTube video so that you can subscribe to Jacob's channel, which I highly recommend, especially if you're into these kinds of themes. And with that, here is my conversation from Jacob's channel with Jacob Winograd. James, Hi. how you doing tonight? Oh, you know, I'm hanging in there. How are you? Oh, it's been a week, but you know, I'm I'm uh, excited that the week's almost over, and I've been looking forward to this conversation. So I'm pretty good. Yeah, you scarfed down your dinner really quick in that little two minute uh, run up to the show. <laughs> yeah, my wife was like, "Here's dinner." I was like, "Cool, I'm going live in five minutes, so I'll take it right. downstairs and inhale it." <laughs> but it was good. It was uh, chicken, and it was it was good chicken, and. I think yeah, chicken's one of those things that like, if it's good, it's great. And if it sucks, it's like irredeemable. Like those other things, it's like a bad steak is still like, well, I can eat it steak. But chicken, if it's bad, is like, ugh, you can't, I can't force it down. I'm the exact opposite. It's so weird. I don't like steak. Really? Like even a really good steak, like I'll eat it, but it's just not, I don't, I don't get a whole lot of pleasure out of it. But chicken, for some reason, I just adore like uh, you know, I mean, if it's if it's dry and and just not appetizing, then it's not good. But I'd say the same thing about a steak or whatever. Well, I, I'll say like I prefer if I know it's really good chicken, I'll often go for the chicken over the steak just because I feel better when I eat chicken. Rather, eat a steak and I feel like I'm down for the count for the rest of the night. Um, <laughs> so I'll usually choose like we'll go to Longhorn Steakhouse and I'll get the chicken over the steak, even though like I kind of like the taste of steak more. But mm-hmm. I prefer to eat chicken just because like I don't know, it's just something about the steak. And I think a lot of like 
it would probably be different if it was like handmade, like homemade steak. But I feel like a lot of the chains you go to, they add like a ton of MSG and other things to their steak to tenderize the meat. And that doesn't always sit well with me. I always feel bad afterwards. So yeah, H Reardon advocating for buffalo. That's that's good. Bison meat is delicious. Yeah, I've never never had buffalo. I'll have to try it you sometime. Should, yeah, come over to the Midwest once. We're we'll <laughs> we'll we'll get you we'll get you set up. I'm always open to trying something once, and I've tried some exotic foods. I've had a uh, my favorite exotic food I've ever tried is gator. When I was down mm-hmm. in uh, Georgia, I tried gator, fried gator, which isn't bad. It actually tastes a lot like chicken, to be honest. Yeah, um, little little chewier, but uh, it's, it was it wasn't bad. Um, then I went. Then I went vegan for five years, and now I'm back to the the world of the same. Uh, so Jesus Christ, Jacob, you just like you did everything. You were a Bernie supporter. You were a vegan. Now you're like a liberal Christian or whatever. Man, yeah. Now I'm almost considering the carnivore diet. To be honest, <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm going back on keto tomorrow. You can tell. I mean, my face is a lot fatter than it was the last time I was on. I'm just like bloated all the time, and I attribute that to having been eating carbs for the last couple of months. Yeah, yeah. I feel terrible. Like, I, I don't know. I got a, so I'm going down to Dallas next weekend or next week and the week following. And then the Tom Woods 2000th event. And I'm like, I'm like scared. I'm not gonna be able to fit into my, you know, nicer clothes when I'm on my, you know, going to a nice dinner or whatever. Uh, it's to that point now where I'm just like, you know, I'm wearing my stretchy jeans and two X t-shirts and stuff. So yeah, do something. yeah, yeah, I gotta do something. I'm, 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 uh, getting that dad bod and uh i don't know like and then like i'm really big into uh like gun culture so i can seal carry but as you put on weight it's harder because like i carry in the uh appendix position so like right in the front so you when your gut starts to push out you you start to really (laughs) notice it (laughs) why is that called the appendix position do you know i have no idea that's just what it's i guess it's i don't know that's how it was referred to me when i first got into conceal carry so but i guess it's not i'm a I'm a really bad libertarian. I've I don't think I've ever even fired a gun, like really? let alone concealed really? carried. Yeah, I know. Wow. It's just it That's, just doesn't appeal to me. It's weird. I mean, I'm not as into it as I used to be. Like I used to go to the range all the time and was always like looking to buy the next gun. And then like the height of the 2020 panic. I mean, I I hoarded a bunch of shit, but uh, I don't know. I've I've kind of relaxed on it a little bit. I think the more I, the more I've grown in my faith, the more I've not become anti-gun, but just not as pro-gun explicitly as I used to be, sure. I guess. Um, I don't well, know. and it's a big deal. I mean, gun, yeah. gun rights are a big deal. Like, that. that's, I guess I wouldn't classify myself uh, as a pacifist. Thank you, Drew. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just not, it's just not really my thing. And it's weird because I live in the hood. Like, I probably should have one. Yeah, I guess I, I live in suburban PA. I'm pretty safe. You might need one more than I do. <laughs> what are the, what are the laws over there in a, Michigan regarding guns. I'm in Minnesota, but I don't even know. Sorry, you're you're thinking you're thinking of Waikie. He's in Michigan. It's just the the M's. I got them mixed up. Yeah, I know. I know know, because I know you're the same state as Sam is in the comments. So we have we actually Sam and Chris can probably can probably check my thinking, but uh, I'm pretty sure we have pretty liberal concealed carry and open carry laws. But when you get into Minneapolis and St. Paul, they're very strict. Like you, I think you can't even like have an assembled gun in your car. Yeah, PA is pretty good. It's really easy to get your concealed carry, although they, they do have, you can't, you need your concealed carry permit to have the gun in your car, like loaded. Otherwise it has to be unloaded, which I've always found to be stupid. Because if you have your gun in your car, like it's, I don't know, they count it as concealed carry if it's in your car for some reason, hmm, but it's pretty good. But then we're surrounded by a bunch of states where it's not. I mean, New York sucks. Maryland sucks. 
Jersey sucks. So it's like people in PA, it's like when you're traveling with guns, it's like you're always like Maryland's the worst. I mean, people have gotten in really serious legal trouble for driving down to, to Maryland. I accidentally, so I used to live right on the border of Maryland. And when I first became a libertarian, I still lived down near the border. And we used to go down to Maryland to go grocery shopping all the time. And I just didn't even occur to me. And like, I just got like, you know, I don't know, 10 miles into Maryland until I realized, crap, I'm not supposed to. And then that's when I, I looked up and I went on my libertarian like signal chat with people and was like, hey guys, um, I'm down in Maryland. And I know the laws are different here. Like, what should I do? And they were like, they were like, can you turn around? I was like, no, it's too late. They were like, all right, you need to strip your gun down, like take the 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 slide off, off the lower, put the ammo, like everything needs to be in a separate spot. They were like, the lower needs to be, like put the lower up the front, put the slide like in the middle somewhere, and the ammo out of the magazine That's scattered insane. around somewhere in the back. And they were like, and then you maybe might not get in trouble. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I've ta- and I've talked to uh, Maryland cops about this and like, they'll, they always say like, well, we'll, we try to be lenient if it's like people near the PA border who like, were just driving. But if they're like getting closer to Baltimore and they get caught, like it's, yeah. it, it's pretty bad. So yeah, it's, um, then I moved, as, I, I didn't move as far away from Maryland as I could, but I moved as far away as I could while staying in my County. And close to work because <laughs> I didn't like being near. I, what sucks is I grew up. I grew up um, a Baltimore sports fan, and my family was from half my family was from Maryland, and the other half was from New York. So I used to travel to those places all the time. And then I became a libertarian, and it's like I often feel like, what's the name of that guy in uh, the Matrix who like who betrayed them? Who who was like, like I, I want to get back the in the Matrix? Bill? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, was, <laughs> I forgot his name. I just looked him up the other day, actually. Uh, I, I forget his name too, but uh, like I have, matter. I have yeah. moments like at my. So like I'm a not a morning person. When I wake up in the morning at like six a.m. until I get my coffee in me, I'm like a very bitter, angry person. And in those moments, I'm just like, like, oh man, why am I a libertarian? This fucking sucks. Cipher, <laughs> thank you, Drew. Cipher, yeah, that is it. Yep. Um, but then I get caffeine in me and I don't know, the caffeine must flush the, there's like residual statism that I have to flush out every day. Or something. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. That caffeine, that'll, that'll put it right through you. Um, I have a new morning ritual that I, I have kind of derived from some of the church fathers and also from Jason Stapleton, who is kind of my spiritual mentor right now. Not really, but, uh, I have started meditating every morning with an app called I awake and then um, right after that journaling and just like kind of talking about in, in my journal, just like a normal journal where I just kind of spill whatever, whatever's on my mind out, maybe a half a page in this. It's not a very, it's not a huge book. Um, it's just, you know, a small little notebook that Miguel Duque, Maggie.life sent me. And it's, it's been great. Um, after the, after sort of spilling my, spilling my guts on the page, I'll do gratitude and, as you know, I'm not necessarily a praying person, but I write the gratitudes instead of like, I'm thankful for blah, blah, blah. Uh, I write it as if it were prayer, like, thank you for mm. blah, blah, blah. And then I do goals. Uh, what, what, what Jason Stapleton calls future casting, where you're writing your very long-term goals as if they're like the current reality. So like, you know, I, I own a house on three acres or whatever it is that, that you want to achieve. Sounds a lot like the um the self what is it the self authoring program that Jordan Peterson does kind of in the same vein of that is what it sounds like somebody oh, describing it to me if it sounds like that then that's great because I have had self authoring on my plate for 
I don't know how long ago was Jordan Peterson on the Tom Woods show, like 2016, maybe even before yeah, that. Yeah, it was. It was. So it was a while I, back. Yeah. Yeah, I bought self-authoring then and have not even cracked it. So. Oh yeah, it's uh, a lot if, of if, the I, same. if I'm if I'm doing it accidentally, then that's that's perfect. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of the, that same kind of stuff. And I, you know, I, and I went through counseling for about a year, and that was that's a lot of what my counselor mm. talked to me about too, which was like it's about telling your own story, and it's like. Uh, it's kind of in the same vein of what these, you know, what Jason's doing, what Jordan's doing. And it's like, you know, and I suffer from ADHD and, and I, I think I probably have some form or mild form of autism. I don't know. I used to not believe in those things. Like I was brought up in a very kind of fundamentalist Christian, uh, background. And I kind of believe some mental mental health wasn't real. That's just, you know, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's just, you just need to suck it up buttercup. Yeah. Yeah. But like, but apparently my teachers were always telling my parents, like, Jacob has ADHD. Like, he mm-hmm. needs medication. And what's funny is that, so I, I went down the, the route of trying medication out, and I've kind of come full circle on that, and I don't believe in the medication so much, or I think, at the very least, it should only be for, like, people that maybe have severe cases that absolutely can't find some other way. But, like, what I've learned to do, and my counselor helped me do this, is to instead just, like, be more self-aware of, like, the way my mind works, and to be intentional with my time and it's kind of like you have to set yourself up every day for success and so it's kind of like what, you, what you're talking about it's like it's like i have to be goal oriented and always mm-hmm. also kind of be uh either writing my own story or maybe as uh jason puts it like future casting it's kind of sounds all but kind of like what i'm doing like it's like if i don't keep my eyes on the prize and put these short-term goals in front of me i will be very disorganized and and chaotic and unproductive but when I do those things, it manages to orient myself in a way where I get things done, and I'm and yeah. it's been getting better and better. Um, you know, like my, my my wife for the longest time, you know, God bless her heart, was patient with me because like I I I I struggled with motivation to be productive, and she wanted me to be on the medication because the medication did help me for a little bit. I just I hated the way it made me feel because like I just I didn't feel like myself. I felt like I was. The best way I can describe it, like I literally felt like I was on the outside watching myself when I was on medication. And it's like the way I experienced life was different on it. And so I just didn't Mm -hmm. like it. I didn't like that. I never liked the idea of being dependent on something, especially like when like 2020 was at its worst. And like, we have no idea. It was like, okay, what happens if I I can't go to the doctor and get my prescription refilled tomorrow? Like, I mean, yeah, I'm I'm the same way. (laughs) I'm the exact same way. Yeah, I'm that way with asthma too. And I've worked hard to get over my asthma and to not mm. use my rescue inhaler. I still have it and I know where it is, but I've gotten to the point now where I maybe only use it once or twice a year where I used to use it all the time. And that's mm. kind of been through trying to like, you know, exercise, diet, breathing exercises. But I was just like, man, like, you know, what what happens if shit hits the fan? Even if it's only temporary, I would say there's like six months where I'm unable to get medication and I'm reliant on it. It's like, well, I'm screwed. Like that's just no way to live. <laughs> I mean, if, if if you have a choice in it, if you don't have a choice, then I guess you st- stock up on it. I guess you know have a have a drawer full of inhalers or uh, yeah. He, but I don't know how you would do that with ADHD medication because it's like, hey, I need a. <laughs> could, could you give me a, a six month supply of amphetamines, please? <laughs> like you couldn't what, do that. I mean, you live in suburban what Pittsburgh? I mean, you can probably find it. Well, yeah, I'm sure there's ways to find it. Yeah, might not be uh, <laughs> the, re- the 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 regulated routes. We don't we don't do that here, uh, James. What are you talking oh, about? Right, we, we 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 obey the law and uh, 
and, and do what, what uh, the FDA and, and stuff tell us to do. And uh, Jesus didn't give a lot of commands, but don't do meth was probably one of them, I would think, right? Yeah, I don't, you know, the, the whole, um, so I know like the Eastern Orthodox are more open on like experimentation and use of like different substances and stuff, but I have no idea oh. what the Catholic view is on that. Sure. Well, and I think they're probably similar. The Eastern Orthodox faith, faiths, I guess, I guess it's kind of one faith, really. Is, Overarching. It's a lot more mystical than, yeah. than the Western churches. So I would imagine that, that that's why there's more of a, I wouldn't say even a focus on it. Like, I mean, it's not like the, it's not like the, the, the fathers of the, of the Eastern church were doing ayahuasca ceremonies or anything like that. But, you know, I mean, yeah. you hear like Vin Armani and, and, and so on kind of talking about that. The teaching of the Catholic Church basically is, you know, it, there, there's, you should not do things that are harmful to your body because your body is the temple. So, you know, I mean, smoking a little weed here and there is probably not a terrible thing. Uh, drinking definitely is. I mean, we drink in church for crying out loud. But uh, like, it was, it was just grape juice in the Bible, James. Right? I know. I know. Jake. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> um, I, I, I hate those people. Sorry. I I used to I used to attend a. Baptist-ish service. I was actually on the praise team for a little while. Um, oh, wow. And yeah, the great, the little vials of grape juice that we would pass around and the like awful stale crackers. Uh, yep. It just, to me, like gr- having grown up Catholic where that is like the central point of worship. Right. And not just like an afterthought, not just something that you do every, you know, maybe once a month or, you know, on Easter or whatever. It felt to me like playing church. Like it wasn't, it wasn't real worship as far as I was concerned. You know, I mean, worship takes lots of different forms, but the sort of, you know, as far as the Catholic Church is concerned, and as far as just sort of traditional religions in general are concerned, the sacrifice is the is the central point of the worship, not the singing and the sermon. Yeah. You know, and given that the Eucharist is in the Catholic tradition and the Eastern Orthodox traditions, um, sort of the the continuation and perpetuation of the sacrifice of the cross then that is the center part of, of worship and not just like, you know, another part of the mass or whatever. You can have mass without a sermon. You can't have mass without, without the Eucharist, I guess mm-hmm. is the, yeah. I've shut never... up, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, Sam was, it, was, it was unfermented wine. Yeah. There's, there's always, there's always those, those <laughs> I, <laughs> hecklers in the audience. I, I literally, it was, it was uncultured yogurt. <laughs> Bringing a glass of milk, you know, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was uh, I was at a church service once where literally, like the the pastor opened, like had had maybe one time mentioned in the middle of his sermon how he had a beer. Like it was like an anecdote. He's telling a story. Was like, oh, I went out and got, you know, got beers and something to eat with this person and told the anecdote. Okay. And at the end, like his style was like he would ask people questions. And somebody got up and was that I heard you said you had a beer, but and then oh, literally like just like disrupted the whole service was asking about that. And I've never seen, he's kind of a friend of mine and he's usually like very snarky, very like on top of things. He, he was totally thrown off. He was just flustered. He was just like, like stammering. Like it was just complete disbelief wow. that she had interrupted the service for something that petty. My aunt's, um, my aunt's a nun. And uh, so like I grew up around religious people drinking. So I guess it didn't really surprise me the first time I saw a priest throwing one back, but uh it does feel a little bit different, even though, even as Catholics, like, you know, we, we're, we don't consider drinking like sinful or, or, you know, somehow reprobate, but 
it still is a little bit weird. One time my high school, I went to a Catholic high school and we had a casino night and my dad was teaching Father Leininger. Father Leininger was in his like late seventies by this point. And actually he just died a few years ago and taught all the way through. My dad taught Father Leininger how to throw craps. And it was just, it was just so weird to me watching a priest doing this like casino night thing. And especially like a priest who was super old. So he was, you know, like he was the Latin professor at my high school because, you know, he was like the only one who still spoke Latin, basically. Yeah, it was just weird. But yeah, I mean, religious people are people. They just, they do things. Yeah, I remember, um, because I grew up in environments where pastors and, and, and people like serving, like didn't drink alcohol or like it was very stigmatized. And then when I got more involved into the Reformed Church, like I'm in now, they're very big into like craft beers and stuff. So one time my house sat for my pastor and like literally in his bedroom, he had like boxes of books and stuff that were like the big 24 packs of beer that were, he was using to hold his books yeah. and stuff and, and alcohol everywhere. So I was like, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was good. It was like normalizing it for me. Cause I grew up in a different environment. I remember the first time I've never been to a Catholic church, but I've attended a Lutheran church cause that's where my wife, grew up. And I think they're very similar. Um, and the first time that I had that style. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Compared, That's fine. You can, you're allowed to say that. Com- compared to the uh, contemporary, <laughs> you know, praise, praise yeah. song, 30 minute sermon, one more praise song, like, you yeah. know, 45 minute church service I grew up in. Lutheranism, Lutheran service is the closest approximate thing I can, you know, gauge to what a Catholic service would be like. Um, as far as far as like the liturgy and like the Eucharist being very central to their service as well. And I remember like being completely like flabbergasted at the idea that they used wine. And I was just like, what? Like I was like, I remember like drinking it and literally almost spitting it out because like I was young and completely caught off guard. Like no one had told me ahead of time this was going to happen. And so I got up there, took another... I was like, what? I was like, did the grape juice go bad? What's going on? I got back and asked. I was like... I was like, is this wine? Like, yeah. I was like, you guys do wine for the year? I was like, it was completely foreign to me. Wow. Um, So I I remember when I first started interacting with Lutherans and Catholics and stuff as I, you know, became a young adult, um, arguing about the Eucharist and stuff and the trans, uh, what was it? I forget. Transubstantiation. Yeah, transubstantiation. I always want to say transfiguration. I'm like, no, that's about Jesus, not about, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) completely different Trans. Transfiguration um, was was that in Gethsemane when he like was lit up or is that different? I think so. I think that's what it is. Man, but I've yeah, forgotten I'm, my I've forgotten my lore. <laughs> but um, I, I did want to get into because you know as I've gotten involved in you know the podcasting sphere, libertarian party sphere, all this, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm meeting a lot of people with Christian backgrounds. A lot of them are Catholics. And I I still like I I have plans to like I want to go to a Catholic service, although the only Catholic churches near me are very like, like they, they haven't been holding regular meetings. They're very like mask Nazis and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's disappointing, but I started like learning more about Catholicism when I started watching, um, was it Bishop Barron, the the guy on YouTube. And you know, the way he presented Catholicism was like, he, he, he helped to like, so I'm not going to ask you a bunch of like cliche questions about Catholicism because he's helped to debunk a lot of the, false notions I have, like, you know, you guys worship Mary and, and all the other, like, you know, straw man attacks that, that Catholics get from autistic Protestants. But, um, I wanted to learn more about your upbringing as 
a Catholic and kind of like what your experience in was it and like what, yeah. And like, you know, I'm always interested to, to, to hear how, like what it meant to you as far as like the traditions that like your view of the church. Like we got into that a little bit last time and it's always like, you know, as, as a, as a person who wasn't raised Catholic, like when I say the words like the church and I say, or, or even Catholic, uh-huh. they mean different things to a Catholic. And it's like, we're yep. speaking different languages at times. I want to hear about your upbringing and, and, you know, specifically in the Catholic church and what that was like. And like, what, what about the Catholic faith, you know, you know, those things, you know, I don't like what striked you the most, like what Mm -hmm. rang the most true, uh, like what was like your conceptualization of it? Sure. Uh, are you, so are you familiar with dispensationalism and rapture theology and all that stuff like the left behind series? Okay. So I want to set the stage because my dad, while he like self-identified as Catholic, we lived in Dallas and Dallas, where the Dallas Theological Seminary is like ground zero of dispensational theology. And so it it just permeates this, it permeates the area, it permeates the city. Everyone there is dispensationalist, whether they know it or not. And so I was not raised in a real strict Orthodox Catholic family. I was raised in a family that went to Mass, but also we didn't like say the family rosary or anything like that. I went to a Catholic school starting in seventh grade and then throughout through high school. And they were pretty progressive. Like I think someone, Oh God, who was Caleb Brown today on Twitter? uh, You called me a self-loathing Catholic. And he was like, Oh, all all Catholics are self-loathing. That was not my experience. Um, The stereotype of like, you know, the, the guilty conscience Catholic um, that was not my lived experience. I keep using these damn lefty words. Uh, <laughs> self-identify lived experience. Um, Tell me your truth, James. <laughs> yeah, my truth. So uh, I, so I wasn't. I was raised in like progressive Catholicism. My my family was. They, my parents were Republicans. Don't don't get me wrong. They, they, you know they were conservative politically, but religiously we just weren't. We weren't like strict Orthodox, pray the rosary type of people. I guess. You um, guys go to the, the, the. I remember. I remember yes, a long time. Yeah. Okay. Right. We did do the side of the cross. We uh, we would say grace before every before every dinner. We didn't say it like at breakfast or lunch because you only you only correct need to say me if it. I'm wrong. But do the uh, uh, is it true that the Eastern Orthodox do it differently than the Catholic? Yeah, like, they so the Eastern Orthodox um, church church. I don't know how to I don't know how to refer to them. Um, yeah, I know. There, it's either Sorry. churches or church. There's because there's like the Syrian Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox and so yeah, on and so forth. Yeah. So Eastern Orthodox people from my understanding, they're very, very Trinitarian. Not to say that we're not Trinitarian as, as Catholics and Protestants, but they like to have very outward symbols of their faith, hence the icons and things like that. Um, and so when they make the sign of the cross, I think they put their three fingers together to symbolize the Trinity, and they actually do it three times. Yeah, like okay. I, I, could be, I could be off a little bit on that. I, I, like I've, never, I've never really had Orthodox friends um, or been to an Orthodox Mass, but that's, that's my understanding. But yeah, so we said grace before meals. I think, I feel like my dad would used to go in and pray with my little brother and sister before bed, but like I was never part of that for some reason. It's really kind of weird. Um, I guess I was just too old. Like I was, I was three years older than my sister and five years older than my brother. So, you know, I was a teenager by the time they were even, you know, starting to get catechized and things like that. Plus I was in Catholic school. So my parents felt like they didn't need to be quite as upfront about things like that for me. It wasn't until my junior year in high school. So my junior year in high school, there was a theology teacher named Mr. Clark, Bruce Clark. If you're in the Dallas area and you're Catholic, you may have heard of him. 
he had graduated from a college called Thomas Aquinas College. It's a little tiny school. I think there's probably like 200 students in total. Um, It's in Ojai, California, out in the middle of nowhere. And it's called a Great Books School. The curriculum is completely set. There's no majors or minors. You read Plato, you read Aristotle, you read Thomas Aquinas. You do not read a single textbook. Um, The only contemporary book was written by the music professor. And that's just because they didn't have good music books in the classical tradition. It's all based on the trivium and the quadrivium. So the trivium is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Those are like the foundation of all education. And then the quadrivium is arithmetic, geometry, astrology, which is weird because you'd think it would be astronomy, but it's astrology and harmonics, which is music. And they learn just all of those things. Basically, you get a bachelor's degree in that and you're set to learn anything else. And so a lot of people go from TAC to like law school or um, seminary or medical school or just wherever. It, it just so happened that this guy, Mr. Clark, went to get a master's in theology and became a theology teacher at my high school. He was only there for a year because he was super conservative. And like I said, it was a progressive school. So, but that one year I glommed onto him and sat in his office and just, it was a very, very good year, like a good experience for me. He taught me like the difference between faith and spirituality. And I remember distinctly sitting there, it was me and like, you know, four or five other guys and Mr. Clark. And we debated for like the entire 45 minute free period whether water is wet. It's such a worthless conversation, but like a really fruitful conversation to have, especially when you're 16 or 17 years old. So that was sort of the beginning of that. I thought that I had a vocation to the priesthood. I didn't. And actually, that was that's really funny because I remember sitting at, at dinner with my parents and saying to them, what if it was the case that God made some people gay because he wanted them to be celibate priests? This was before the sexual abuse scandal. So, <laughs> uh, so, you know, it wasn't like a weird thing to say. And that was kind of my very first time that I ever even like admitted that I might be gay too. I'm glad that I didn't go to seminary. I think that that could have been disastrous uh, for me. I don't know that I would have been able to. So I, I know some priests who have, let's say, broken their vow of celibacy, not with children, obviously, but they're you know, they're gay men and they, you know, will take a vacation every so often, so to speak. And if I were to become a, if I were to have become a priest, I could see myself doing that, just becoming a, you know, a part-time once a year, go, go have a fling with somebody in New Orleans or whatever. And I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want that to be my life if I had pursued that vocation. So I'm glad that I didn't. Um, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, I'm now a gay podcaster who lives with this partner and, uh, talks about Catholicism on other podcasts for who knows what reason. But throughout like my 20s and stuff, I was very into theology and f- apologetics and things like that. And I never really lost that love just because I, 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 I like the, I like systematic theology and I like, yeah, I like that. But also in the last year, ever, you know, ever since Vin Armani, of course, started talking about the dim age and the age of re- uh, magic and all that stuff, I've been really feeling tugged toward discerning sort of where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to, how I'm supposed to understand the world, I guess. David Gornoski, who is not Catholic, has had a pretty big impact on me, especially with, you know, his scapegoating stuff, which doesn't come from him. It comes from Rene Girard, but uh, he's, he kind of popularizes it. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what else really to say. I, I, like I said, we, we would go to mass 
every week. Uh, I didn't have to go to mass after I started going to Catholic school because we went to mass at school. So I would stay home. I mean, it was, you know, actually, no, uh, when I, when I got a driver's license, my senior, so my senior year in high school and maybe like junior year, I did go to a youth group up in Plano, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. But I mean, it was still like a half hour drive, but like the church that I grew up in didn't have a youth group to speak of. So I made a lot of friends there. I think I, I think I like went to their summer camp or something like that as well. So that, I mean, yeah, I would say that my junior year, junior and senior years in high school were probably my like most faith filled, if that makes sense. Not faithful, but faith filled. You said um, in your, uh, I forget the name of the teacher you said, but you had a discussion about the difference between faith and spirituality. Spirituality, is that right? Oh sure, yeah. What 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 was um, like in your like what's the Catholic view or your view on what the difference between I, those two things are? Like, or I mean, cause I that was interesting. I, I was kind of curious what you what that was. I can't tell you what the, what the conclusion was in that, in that jam session. Cause it was, you know, over 20 years ago. Sure. I'm actually, I'm at my 20th anniversary this year, to be honest, it's, I feel so old. So the difference between faith and spirituality, I think is probably the difference between what I understand and what I do. It's like, so you and I know each other. We've met in person a couple of times. That's kind of faith you and I go grab a beer and some, and some wings and actually like fellowship with one another, uh, whatever that means to the two of us, that's the spirituality. The spirituality is the relationship with myself and the universe and God. It's almost and, like the, the telos versus the pathos, maybe sort of way to look at it. Yeah, man. If that's, yeah. if that's what you want to say, sure. Actually, I don't know the, I don't know the, I don't know what pathos is. I've seen the word, but I don't know it. Then I think it's like the same as like, kind of like praxis sort of, I mean, there's oh, like, there's okay. the, it's then, like yeah. the, yeah, sort of. Um, I might be wrong. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not always the best at remembering all these terms. I think that's I think that's roughly right. But I mean, with your concept, I mean, like, what's your conceptualization of faith, and also like, you know, like, of what God is, and do you think like where you are in your life right now? <laughs> like, we're getting to the big questions now. Yeah. Like, do you do you think that you have faith in in God, or if you don't have faith in God, you have faith in in something? Because sometimes I feel like there's there's like this gray area where it's like, and like I've been there at moments in my life where it's like, you know, questioning, like, do I know God is real? Do I believe God is real? Sure. I don't know, but I have faith in something and I can't put words to it. And then I kind of mm -hmm. went through a, I went through like a period of my life of like deconstruction and then sort of reconstruction. And um, so what's that, you know, like, where, where are you at? And like, you know, I mean, maybe give a little bit of backstory of what led to it and where you are now. Let me address two of, the, two of the comments real quick. So the Catholic Libertarian podcast said, come to Florida for the Tom Woods thing, and I'll take you to Mass. Are you going to be down there for Tom Woods 2000? I unfortunately will not be. Okay, well, I'm going to be there. So Catholic Libertarian, I will definitely take you up on that offer, especially if you could take me to a Latin Mass, because the next question from Chris was asking me if I'd been to a Tridentine Mass, and I have not, and I would love to, I'd love to be there to experience one. What is my conception of God right now? I have never identified myself as an atheist. I have identified as an agnostic before, and I don't think that's quite right. I'm certainly not a deist. Yeah, Nick. Nick says, see you there, James. Yeah, we're 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 all set, man. I I'm think really, Jose's supposed to stay. I'm Jose's really supposed bummed. to stay in my hotel room too. I'm really I was planning a, on going and then I got asked to go to Michael Heiss's wedding. So I was like crying oh, out loud. That dude. <laughs> I was He's like taking over everything. <laughs> I was like, you had to do the yeah, I can't tell him that. Uh, well, he was like, there was like, there was literally no other weekend you could do it. I was like, really? Yeah. 
really? I was like, come on, man. I know. But I was like, and his wedding was planned before this, I think. I mean, I, I, I think understand. it was, yeah. But you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, Mike's a good friend, so I was like, I was like, I hope you know I love you because like you're trumping Tom Woods, and that says a lot. <laughs> but uh, anyway, continue. Okay, continuing. Um, so I've never, I'm, I'm not a deist. I'm not an agnostic anymore. I've never been an atheist. Here's my thing. So I see that there are things. Like, like there's a world, there's a universe, there's, there's stuff. And to me, it does, I do not believe in spontaneous generation. So like, because I don't believe in spontaneous generation, I believe that something must have created that. That's my starting point. That entity, that creator had to have some motivation for creating it. Um, and this is why I'm not a deist. I don't think that like, I don't think that like the creator just, just wound creation up and, and let it go. That doesn't make sense to me. People don't, and and when I say people, I mean like people with I, entities with a will don't just don't just do stuff for no reason. And the only thing that I can come up with is that the creator wanted to see something beautiful that the creator could love, and that is the reason that I believe in a personal God and not just a divine watchmaker God. And and so this is where it gets a little bit different. Um, I, I, I take some leaps. So this entity that created things had to have some force that it used to create the things. And that to me is the logos. That's the word that's Jesus. And the, the logos, the word, just like any other word, when, when we, when we, when we expel words from our mouth, uh, it goes on a breath, it goes on, on the air. And being that, that breath and wind, um, are the word for spirit in Greek and Hebrew, it just, it just follows that then it's a Trinitarian God. It's the creator, the word, and then that wind, that breath, the spirit that carries the word into the creation that, that speaks it into existence, I guess. So then when I read the Old Testament, the series of covenants between this loving creator and this creation that continuously rebels and this creator that continuously brings them back into the fold that's a that's a beautiful story to me, and I hope that that's the that, and I hope that that's the the reality of the relationship between creator and creation. And you know, I hope that it happened on other worlds too. I, I'm not I'm not I'm not under the delusion that we're somehow special. But for us, that's the story. You know, you've got a you've got a couple, and they break the they break the covenant almost immediately, and the creator is like, "Hey, uh, that's not okay, and you can't do that again. So fuck off out of this garden." but also I'm going to build you a family. And then you've got this family and the entire world has rebelled against the creator, except for this one dude. And the creator is like, Hey, I'm going to kill everybody. So you better, you better do something to protect yourself. So he builds this ark and you know, the, the covenant is restored with the rainbow in the sky. And you know, even though the entire world had rebelled, there was that one family that built this entire kingdom, this tribe of, of Abraham, and then the, and then the, how many tribes are there? 12 tribes of Israel. And then a kingdom, even though God was like, no, you don't want a king. Uh, and this is where, this is where biblical anarchy comes in, obviously. Right. God was like, you don't want a king. Don't, don't, don't ask me for this. And they're like, no, no, no. We see everybody around us. Like, I think there's something in it for, for, for having this, this worldly ruler. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. Here, have Saul. And, <laughs> and, and we saw how that worked out. And what's um, funny is that he kept saying, he said in 1 Samuel 8, and I won't deliver you on that day, but then he does. And then they yeah. do it again and he delivers them again. And it's kind of like what you're saying. Like, you know, it's like, it's this constant cycle of 
God saying like, don't do that or you're screwed. And then they do it. And then it's like, but he's always, he's always trying to, to restore them. Right. And I think that's what, you know, Jesus did in my mind was that he kind of restore what was lost in a ultimate sense. But um, that's my little interjection. Go, go on, continue. <laughs> yeah. So that's that. And so fast forward, you've got, you've got all the covenants throughout the, throughout the old Testament. Um, you've got this diaspora where, I guess it's not a diaspora. It's just like the enslavement of the, of the Hebrew people. And then all of a sudden the, the word becomes flesh. And, and that's that, like, that is the final covenant. That is the only thing that you need. There's no more, there's no more need for sacrifice. There's no more need for human sacrifice, which that's my, that's my big gripe with conservative Christians is that they're so they're so in the sort of punitive mindset. And it goes, I mean, it goes back to forever and ever and ever. I mean, the, the Spanish Inquisition, the Salem witch trials, everything. Um, I think it's human nature, but there's no need. If you believe in the sacrifice of the cross, there's no need for punitive measures. Certainly there's needs to, there's need to keep your society safe. But if someone is acting out of accord with your values and the values that you believe your faith dictate, then you don't need to worry about that. God doesn't need a bodyguard. You know, uh, that's also why I kind of got out of apologetics. God doesn't need like someone to defend him. Like <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I, my wisdom and knowledge pale in comparison. And even Paul says, you know, we, we, we see dimly as in a mirror. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know that. I don't know the truth. I don't know the fullness of the truth. I, I, I do think, and this is where we will differ. I do think that Jesus left a church. He didn't leave a book. He didn't commission the the apostles to go out and write letters to all the nations. He said to make disciples of all the nations. And the Bible can't exist without the church, but if the Bible was never written, then the church would still exist. Um, and so that's why I would differ from Protestants with their sola scriptura doctrine, because I think that the Bible, while maybe necessary, is certainly not sufficient for determining doctrine. Hmm. We will definitely get into that, but I'm trying to stay somewhat in order here. <laughs> um, what was... Um... I had a question and then the soul you're just you're distracted you're like you're like pulling me down oh my bad, my bad. <laughs> no, no you're fine you're <laughs> fine <laughs> um yeah you know I, I i've tried to study a lot of church history which is mostly catholic church history and um you know one of the like there's there's like a, a a good and a one of the biggest positives i want to talk about about the catholic church throughout history is that they've always strongly stood on the doctrine of the trinity which I think mm-hmm. is one of the most important doctrines. And I was actually surprised the more I learned about the history of Catholicism, how like how strongly they enforced it. I mean, people were excommunicated, almost it was, wars were fought over it was like such the, a big deal yeah. that it led to the East West schism. Yeah. I mean, that <laughs> I mean, how do you answer this question, Jacob? Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father, or does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son? Oh, yeah, gosh. <laughs> like, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how I would answer that. Like, to me, it's like, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, does it, I mean, maybe this is wrong of me to ask, but like, does it, does it matter? I, 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 I know this is like the divide and it's like, is the, and then like, it's the, does Jesus have one force or two or like one will or two wills? Mm-hmm. Is There's, yeah. there's all this stuff in it. Like, I mean, I kind of get why it matters, but then, 
like what you brought up with Paul, where it's like Paul, even Paul, who is like the <laughs> biggest badass of the 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 New Testament, wrote half of it. You know, mm-hmm. did I mean, you know, the first hundred years of church history might as well be like, you know, Jesus Paul. Like, <laughs> like the, Paul did so much of the heavy lifting there. Um, and even he said, I know nothing. So it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I And then the Trinity, like I always want to stand on the Trinity, but I remember when I was first getting into theology, how my conception of the Trinity was actually wrong. And I had to get corrected people because what I was actually describing was the, the, the heresy of, of uh, what is it, modalism? which is like an easy, if your understanding of the Trinity is shallow, it's easy to fall into modalism. Uh, Can you go over modalism for the, for the audience? From my memory, it's sort of like believing that, I'm trying to go from memory here. It's kind of like... Is it, like that, is it, is it that God has three modes and... Um, sort of. It's kind of like... I, it's kind of like all the heresies and stuff. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, like I said, I've kind of been out of the church for a few years, but... Yeah. It's the doctrine that the persons of the Trinity represent only three modes or aspect of the divine relation, yeah. not distinct or coexisting persons yeah. in divine nature. And then like, and you see, actually, like there's, there's three, like the, there's like the, uh, the God is the son, but the son is not the Holy spirit graphs. Yeah. That's actually kind of common in, in the black church in America, actually. Um, like I think Bishop T.D. Jakes, who also is from Dallas, um, but one of the big leaders in, in black churches, I believe that they're modalists or at least some sort of modified version of modalism if I remember correctly. Right. It's tough to conceive of. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the way I described it earlier as like, the way I described it earlier as like, you know, the, the creator and the, the word and the breath that carries the word. I mean, that's how right. I can best understand it, but that's not, that, that's probably heretical too. Well, and that's why like, see, to me, it's like, I want like, like part of me. So my nature and I'm very like, it's, it's not a coincidence. I ended up being an anarchist because like, I think I've, I always I, I look back at my childhood up until now and I'm like I've always kind of been an anarchist because I've always like and like Jordan Peterson talks about this how um what's funny is that even though I kind of identify as a conservative in some ways I'm also my <laughs> temperament is actually much more left leaning because I yeah. hate I hate borders like like when someone puts like a box and it's like you know here's the line and you should not cross it I'm like you know, autistically, why, why, why? And like step over the line and go back and go, you know, it's like, I, I hate them. Like I want to slash the, the way my mind works is I like push on things that other people, you know, that I, and like, so I don't always get along in my reformed circles. Like I remember I, in a group that reformed anarchism is a group I'm part of on Facebook. And I just like made a post asking a question about like, what are, what are, what do you conceive? What like, what are the conceptions of hell? And I was like, is hell what the traditional theories are? Or do you think maybe it's uh, maybe annihilationism or well, conditionalism wait, or all that? Wait, and wait, then they wait, were like, wait, why are you asking this? This, this is look, this is what the Westminster confession says. And, and don't you dare question it. I'm like, and I was like, but, and that's where it's like, I love systematic theology, but I also hate when people use it as like a, like they weaponize mm-hmm. it to be like, don't ask questions. I don't think, uh, this is something I think all denominations are guilty of doing at times. And they don't realize how much that hurts uh, young people in their faith when they're stopped from asking those questions, I think. Because it's, I don't think it's bad to ask questions. You, if, if, if you're um, angry at people for asking questions, maybe it's because your answers aren't good enough. And you need to make your answers better. There's a theologian, a Catholic theologian. I think he's dead now, but um, his, yeah, he is dead. His, his name is Hans Urs von Balthasar. And oh, God. he was 
actually, yeah, he's very, very German, I think. He was elevated to the to, to Cardinal by John Paul II right before he died. And so I don't think he ever even got to like don the red hat. But he wrote a book called Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved, which is, uh, if you remember, I think it's First Timothy, that is God's will that all be saved and right. come to the knowledge of the, of the, of the truth. And uh, basically, he wrote this book that was uh, squaring Catholicism and universalism. And that blew my mind, uh, especially coming from a cardinal that was elevated by John Paul II, not, you know, not this Francis dude who is <laughs> uh, kind of awful. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of room for lots and lots of things um, within within the Catholic faith, let alone, you know, Christianity in general. So yeah, the, just the idea that the idea that they would quash your, your curiosity is a little surprising. Yeah. And you know, universalism is something I've, I mean, we talked about this in the last podcast, but I've gone back and forth on that. And it's like, you know, it's like my, my, my Calvinist leanings go like anybody who claims universalism from this place of certainty and, Oh, and if, you know, if God sends anyone to hell, he's a, moral monster or whatever sure. i push back strongly against that but then i also push back pretty equally strongly against the Cal- the calvinists who go well it's it's most certainly not everybody and it's most certainly a very small amount of people i'm like well first of all even if that was true why would our hope not be that it wasn't yeah because i mean if, if god desires that all be saved shouldn't that that our be desire shouldn't that be our desire too and you know Part of Catholic theology I don't get, I don't know how much you know about it, is like I've never understood the uh, like purgatory and like the Catholic conception of the afterlife. And I always feel like I I misunderstand it. But like my intuitions have always been sort of that I don't know, like I believe in the kind of Calvinist sense of like monergism that I believe that is God's will ultimately that determines salvation. What I don't understand is why some. Uh, Calvinists, Reformed Christians say that that decision-making must only be done until your last breath and that God couldn't sovereignly determine after your last breath to 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 save your soul. It's like, I'm, I'm not saying I'm convinced he does for every person, but like, you know, well, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard like the, 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 like the uh, cliche Calvinist thing where they go like, who are you, oh man? They quote Romans 9 at people whenever they say something like they're trying to put God in a box and I throw that back at them. I'm just like, okay, but like, who are you to, to question if God, like if God wants to save somebody after they die, like, I don't know. Like, are you going to sit there and tell God, no, you can't do this because of my interpretation of these, these certain verses. And I don't like, as much as I know about Catholicism, there's this weird, like there's this, I don't want to say weird. That's kind of derogatory, but just to me, it's like strange, this idea of purgatory. And I don't, I don't know how much it, connects to what my intuitions are. So, I mean, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. So purgatory is not where the unsaved go. It is certainly everyone in purgatory is destined for heaven. The best analogy that I've heard for purgatory is like, you're, you're going to a wedding feast. You're not going to go to a wedding dirty. You're going to take a shower first. And that's essentially what purgatory is. It's getting you cleaned up before the, before the party. So to kind of wed that with the, pseudo universalist thing that I mentioned earlier, the way that, the way that I could see those two things kind of melding is, or melding meshing is 
if a person lives his life according to his conscience, then he has done all that he can do, basically. Mm. Um, not everyone knows that he needs to be baptized. I mean, Baptists certainly don't know that they need to be baptized. It's kind of um, ironic. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but that's not to say that Baptists who die unbaptized because, you know, whatever, they just never never got around to it. For them, it's not a sacrament. It's not to say that they didn't serve serve the Lord according to their own their own knowledge of sure. how they should live their lives. And then and so so then extrapolate that out to Muslims. I mean, you know, I mean if I'm a if I'm a if I'm born in Saudi Arabia and I'm gonna get stoned to death if I'm not a Muslim, I mean, why would I not be a Muslim? That doesn't make any sense. Um, extrapolate that out to, you know, a, a scientist who doesn't believe in God. If I, if I follow my conscience and find the tr- as much truth as is revealed to me in my lifetime and follow it to the, the smallest jot and tittle of my conscience, well, then, you know, that, that is, it's no fault of my own necessarily that I didn't find the, like, absolute truth before I died. But I don't, I don't, I, know. I don't, I don't want to say I ascribe to that, but it's definitely comforting. Yeah, it's it's, it's at least it's a it's an interesting thing to think about. And it's just like I don't know. It's not to me. It's like it's not something I find myself convinced of, but I don't find myself. Uh, I guess I'm agnostic on it. Right? It's like mm. I don't know. It could be true. It might not be true. Um, I would still like encourage people to like. It's better for your eternal comfort and also for just life here and now to to follow mm-hmm. after Christ. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm very. I'm not very. It's not in my temperament or even like my conception of my, of my theology to try to fearmonger people into following following Christ or or being Christian. It's just not something I really have have in me. But I know Bishop Barron, Barron. Uh, in one of his YouTube uh, videos I watched talked about this thing that there's like the his, his the way he put it was that like there's the normative root of salvation, which is I guess like through the church. But then, like there, there are, you know, alternative or non-normative routes that people can still get to God. Sure. That like he's not like well, those aren't aren't going to be what we recommend. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't work through, you know, mm-hmm. mysterious and and many different ways. So, and there's something to that that I don't know rings true to me. With the discovery of America, the church kind of had a crisis of conscience as far as that went. Like, how can all these people who have never had the chance to be evangelized have possibly gone to hell if they just didn't have the, if they didn't have that opportunity to be baptized? So, you know, I mean, it took from 1492 to 1963, but, but it, you know, eventually the church came out with something like that, the, the sort of normative versus extraordinary means of salvation. Yeah. Which I I find to be, yeah. I mean, I, I find that to make a lot of sense. Um, you know, I even, you know, one of the Catholic ideas that I I learned about that I actually like is the idea of asking saints to pray for you. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I don't know. I've always found that to be like, I remember before I learned what that all was, I thought that I I just believed the, the, like, I don't know, propaganda or stereotypes that Catholics prayed to, like they worship and pray to Mary and all the saints and stuff. But then when it was explained to me that it's like, well, they're not actually dead. And just like you would maybe ask your father or your priest or somebody you know to pray for you. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you ask somebody in heaven 
you know, to pray for you as well. And I don't know, there's something yeah. beautiful about that idea that fellowship in Christ isn't just uh, tertiary, right? That it's, you know, it's kind of like connecting to the more spiritual side of things that I actually really, I really, I mean, there's a lot of Catholicism that I, that I, I find beautiful. And even the traditions, like I used to be, because I grew up in, you know, the more contemporary styles, I didn't like hymns. I didn't like liturgy. Oh, sure. I didn't like that stuff. But then, you know, I, I attended a Lutheran church and then I started to notice more of how a lot of the contemporary styles of doing church and worship are less about like diving deep into God and more about, they seem more like they're about pleasing the flesh and sort of mm-hmm. like, it's a feels good service, but it's not a, it's like, okay, well, is the point of our corporate gatherings to have a feels good service or is it to, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm using, well, I mean, I'm using polite language. The way my dad calls it uh, spiritual circle jerking. Which is a, uh, <laughs> I think I accurate, but a, but a, you know, it's, it's <laughs> he got uh, kicked out of a church for using that. So, but yeah, uh, I don't know. I think it's accurate. Him, <laughs> um, I see it this way. So let me let, first let me get so the 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 saints and and so forth. I mean, it's 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 just kind of common sense when when you go visit your grandmother's grave, you might talk to her, and I don't know whether you believe that she hears you, but Catholics do. If she's in heaven, um, it, it's also kind of like pop pop theology. But I mean, everybody who loses someone—not everybody, but a lot of people—you you hear sort of the cliche, "Oh, you know, they're just angels in heaven now." I mean, they don't. Obviously, people don't become angels. That's theologically unsound. But you know, I mean, there's there's no reason that they that the people in heaven, assuming that you believe that, assuming that you believe that there is a personal judgment that takes place prior to Judgment Day. Uh, which is a whole other thing that I don't know much about. Eschatology is not my not my strong suit. It's not but, mine either. Although Karen Ann wants me to read her book on eschatology, and I told her I, I know. would. So. Man, dude, I listened <laughs> to that that I listened to that interview. That was that was first of all, that was a really good conversation. I haven't read her book, and I probably won't. I have a feeling she's got some crazy eschatolo- eschatological uh, she's things into, to say. Uh, preterism, which is uh, that's a taboo in Reformed circles. Actually, is it really? So, what, yeah, uh, I. I'm not familiar with it. I don't think. I mean, what, like I've read it and I, I I don't know preterism very well. I could look it up quick. And it's like, it's the eschatology is just, I think I should care about it more, but oftentimes yeah. because I think this is my ADHD. Oh, 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 oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, preterism basically is the, is the school of thought that the Olivet discourse. So the, the Mount of Olives thing and the book of revelation all of those prophecies will were fulfilled in the year seventy when with the fall. Oh, that's right. Like it all it already happened, and yeah. we're living. We're already living past the that the uh, whatever the thousand years or whatever. I guess I have I have I guess I mean obviously I'm Catholic, so I'm kind of an Augustinian, um, and so I, I have no problem with the like violent things in those prophecies being the fall of Jerusalem. But the things that follow that the the millennial reign. I would say is probably a not quite literal thousand year reign, but it's the reign of the, of the church with the Holy spirit inspiring it, which leaves room for the second coming because the preterists don't really account for what happens at the end, I guess is my, is kind of my issue. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm Christian, then I have to believe in a second coming. That's kind of my, that's kind of my, one of my lines in the sand, I guess. Yeah, I, I believe that too. I just don't have, for me, it's like, I believe there's a second coming and then all the details are gravy because yeah. 
it's like I, I don't know why. I mean, some people say it's really important for your views on salvation and and uh, evangelism, and I just I don't know. It's like I don't know if my views on salvation and evangelism are productive, then I'm you know maybe I'm not missing out by having these deep eschatology debates. But I don't know. I, I I'm always yeah. open to learning, but my ADHD mind, if I get bored with something, I can't study it. So there's like you can read the same line. I always say like ADHD is like if you don't if you're not interested in what you're reading, you could read the book five times through and retain nothing of it. Because it's just like the way my brain works is like if I'm not interested in it, it's like the words do not ring in any kind of meaningful way in my head. So I have to be in the right frame of mind to study something, unfortunately. Getting back to Christian Circle Jerks, um, because this is this is something that I... I did say we were going to do that in the second hour, right? <laughs> oh, that's true, huh? <laughs> that's so funny uh before we so before we started you messaged me and you said i'm getting on right now and i said oh it's better than getting off right now i guess yeah and uh you said yeah we won't do that until the second hour um christian circle jerks uh what was i saying right i just yesterday thought that had this thought pop into my head so it's not it's not like it's not well thought out but it feels like right now we're at a transitionary period, not only societally, but also in the church. And the reason I say that, so if you look through history and I don't, did I go over my, my, what do you call it? Integral, integral timeline last time I was on? Integral timeline. Okay, good. No, I didn't. Um, no, I so, so. so integral theory, I, I've interviewed a whole bunch of people on integral theory. I've read the books. Uh, integral theory is sort of like post postmodernism. And they hold, so integralists hold that history is kind of a series of eras. Uh, we're coming out of the postmodern era and we're entering the integral area, era. So if you look at the history of sort of Christianity, you've got, it tracks with the history of like societies. So you might have like a really brutal, especially, well, and this is your favorite, your, your favorite part of ecclesial History is the is Constantine and and his sort of assumption of Christianity as the the state religion in the Roman Empire. It just tracks. You've got Christianity. You've got Catholicism, uh, sort of the pre modern version of Christianity. This Calvinist, hyper systematic, um, hyper doctrinal, modernist era of Christianity, where everything is very cerebral, almost to the uh, expense of spirituality. And then you enter this postmodern age where the postmodern philosophers were very, very critical of consumerism, and that didn't stop consumerism from taking hold. And this is the era of the megachurch, of prosperity gospel, of, of easy believism, of all of this stuff, of, of star, like the Starbucks bar on your, uh, on your way into the sanctuary. I mean, it's just utterly insane when you look back at it, but that's what it was. And you know, all throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, churches became a consumer product and whoever could sell Christianity the best got the most people. And that was like the mark of their, of their success. And if you could be on the 700 club or if you were, um, you know, Tilton, Robert Tilton or whoever on TV, uh, having people touch their TV screen so that you could pray over them. I mean that I, I remember one time I was like nine years old. It was the middle of the night. I had a bad cold. I, I, I couldn't sleep. And Robert Tilton was on TV and literally he said, I, I, I sense, I sense that somebody isn't feeling well, put your hand up on the screen for me to pray over you. And like I, my cold wasn't cured, but I sure bought into it. I'm really glad that that era is kind of over, but I, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to what is to come. And I think what is to come is Eastern Orthodoxy. I think that's why we see so many of our people 
Um, because not to toot our own horns, but libertarians are kind of on the cutting edge of everything. Um, we're, we're, we're smarter and we're, and we're more, we have more force, foresight than other people. Uh, I have a feeling that we are entering an age where Eastern Orthodoxy, which is, it beautifully blends the doctrine with the spirituality and the, and the mysticism and rejects that postmodern consumerism pretty well. So it, it, like, it, it wouldn't surprise me that if we're on the, if we're on the kind of cusp of a, an Eastern religious uh, like resurgence, I think which I, I which I would yeah. which I would welcome. Yeah, there's definitely. I mean, in, at least in and it's kind of like a minority within a minority. But the Christian anarchist community is actually a lot of them are kind of going down. Well, some of them are going down the Anabaptist route. Some of them are going back to Eastern really? Orthodox. Um, but then there's like this weird like the Anabaptists and the Eastern Orthodox are kind of like these like long lost brothers sort of sure. they talk and stuff. So I mean, yeah, they're kind of yeah. the rejects of their, of their movement. I mean, the Eastern Orthodox church obviously are way smaller than the Roman church and the Anabaptists. I mean, hell they had to cross the Atlantic in order not to be murdered by their state. I mean, it right. makes sense. Right. Yeah. So, and like, there's, there's part of me that like, you know, I, I, like I always kind of feel uh, homeless as far as denominations go, sure. but it's like, so when people ask me for something, it's like the best shorthand description of my beliefs is to identify loosely as kind of a Calvinist. But then it's like, okay, that's just, but that's like, that label is kind of meaningless once you get to talk to me because like, I'm not a typical Calvinist. And I actually, I actually feel like it's better to look at theology as not a, like, I like systematic theology, but then I also feel like theology is more of an archaeological dig. And mm. I feel like we see every as in a mirror. I mean, right. it's yeah. And yeah. I feel like every denomination has a focus that is true. But if you, it becomes untrue when you focus on that in, in isolation. I remember William L- Lane Craig talked about this, like he used the metaphor for talking about atonement theory. And he was like, atonement theory is like this multifaceted diamond. And there's, there's like different parts of it and they're all true but if you take one of those things and you hyper focus on it at the expense of the the rest it becomes untrue or unbeneficial hmm. and it's so it's like yes like i believe in penal substitution theory of atonement and i believe in christ as victor and i believe can you, in, can you can you kind of go over some of those for me I, i'm not familiar with 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 those theories uh penal substitution being that like uh jesus paid the price on the on the cross hmm. for the uh, like forgiveness of sins. It was like almost like a, a legal sense that like he paid the, the, the just, like we, the just punishment of sin that was going to be poured out onto us was poured onto him instead. And it was like okay. a, a legal, like almost like in a, it's used as a metaphor, like a legal substitute is what he was kind are, of being there. There are Christians are these, who deny that by the way. So. Are these like, con- are these controversies in, in Protestantism? Some like some of the uh, more Anabaptist types or some of the more progressive Christians uh, deny penal substitution theory. Okay. They um and they, they tend to be the ones that are more universalists actually. But uh, then there's like uh, yeah then there's uh, Christus Victor. There's there's a few other ones I forget the the exact terms of them. But um it's really interesting. If William William Lane Craig actually wrote a whole book, which I would recommend on on atonement theory which is really good. He goes into all the different ones and their historical origins and all that. Um, and actually it was funny because William Lane Craig around the same time I did, I was doing it. 
was doing a like deep dive into into because like to study this, he had to go back to church history, and so mm-hmm. then he kind of was like uh, becoming more pro Catholic at the same time that I was. Sure. Um, so it was it was kind of funny because he was going back and like a lot of the you know people who were proponents of a particular point were. Catholics, right? Because that's that was the prevailing dominant force in church history for so long. Um, I, I, did, I guess I just didn't realize that there were different like atonement theories. Well, I don't, um, know, if, I don't know if theory is. It's like there's just different. Uh, the, but like the way he put it is like they're they're all true. Like if sometimes people focus on just okay, one. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, like they're, but they're but they're not really like to him. Like they're not really like this is a theory that stands alone by itself. But like this is a truth that is one facet of the overall picture or the overall like diamond right and it's like if you if you if you uh define the diamond by only one of its sides well that's false so like you know it's okay to you know look at the whole diamond and zoom in and look in at one part to like examine it but you can't do that at the expense of like forgetting about the other parts and i feel like theology a lot of times is that way too like i really identify with the reformed and the calvinist emphasis on God's sovereignty. And like it fits in actually very nicely with my biblical anarchy podcast because like when you to me, like my argument is very simply that like if God is sovereign, then man isn't. So we should not bow to man. We should not uh submit to man except when he is fulfilling a God given role and he is filling like you know carrying out God's will. Uh but if if any man asks you to do what's contrary to God, like obviously God comes first. And like, I like, there's actually, there weren't many Christians and many churches over 2020 that defied the lockdowns and, and, and mandates and stuff like that. But it, the reformed churches were the ones that seemed to do it the most. So, and a lot of that was coming from that emphasis, but then sometimes their over-focus on God's sovereignty will cause them to lose sight of other things that like, I'll find other denominations focus on more and I appreciate that. And it's like, I don't want to, like, I, I want to be well-rounded in my theology and faith and not like sure. be overly, you know, it'd be like, it, I guess a comparison would be like, it'd be like being a libertarian and only focusing on monetary policy. Okay, well, monetary policy is important and a part of libertarian philosophy, but dude. like, dude, if that's all you focus on, you're... <laughs> <laughs> I, my, my very favorite, like there are so many libertarians who can and not only can like anybody can but do trace everything back to the fed it's all the fed's fault and like yeah sure i mean maybe it is but what are you going to do about it like I mean, i've i've been guilty of that and i've had people i remember i was in a clubhouse room once and, and somebody got really annoyed with me because he's like jacob like your answer to everything is the fed and you know back then i was a bit more like i was kind of like cage stagey very like at the, the peak of my I'm a new autistic libertarian. Now, like, well, because it is, it's because it <laughs> yeah. is. And I was like, but you know, and it's like, it's true. But then it's also like, okay, it is true. But if all I ever talk about is just that one truth, I'm not giving a holistic philosophy or giving a holistic worldview to people. I'm, I'm, I've become, you know, stale and, uh, you know, like, like a car isn't just the gas pedal. You know what I mean? Like the car isn't just the engine, the car is everything all together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> part of the Catholic. So, we'll, I'll get into some of my, my criticisms here of the Catholic Church, For and sure, maybe yeah, get your feedback on it. Uh, we got to start with the most obvious one, which is the Pope. I know last time you were like, I, I didn't want to get into it much back then, but like I said, I don't get the Pope. I don't 
believe in the apos- the, or the the apostolic succession argument, mm-hmm. I guess, and you were like, why? And uh, and so I guess my reason for it is that you know coming from a place of just like not like so I'd never heard the Catholic claims before for that. And then when like I just grew up not believing in the Pope, so I was just kind of like naturally like I don't have this belief. And then when Catholics said, well, you should, you know, it, be part of the Catholic Church because it is the original church and because the Pope is the successor to Peter, I was like, okay, why? Back up your claim. And then the verses given to substantiate that claim, I just have not found convincing. And it seems mm-hmm. to always go back to that one where it's like, Peter, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. And to me, it's like, okay, but like, yeah, Peter was a rock that helped build the church. I don't know if that is enough of an argument to say that. And and what Jesus meant by that is that Peter is going to be the head figure and that there will necessarily be a successor to him that will carry down through, sure. you know, generations and stuff. So, and then also just looking like my, you know, this will get into like our, you know, uh, views on institutions and stuff like that. It's like, I, I am, I'm not against hierarchy and I'm not against authority, but I like things to be as decentralized as possible when it comes to our, you know, authority and hierarchy structures. And when I study church history, there's a lot of, you know, I mean, I think there's what, been two or three popes that at one point were, uh, they were, there was one pope i i can't remember his name but he was actually accused of heresy and then later they had to go back and say no he was just guilty of negligence and um it, it just seems like there's a lot riding on this one person and to me that seems to kind of be contrary to the idea of like well the one person that our religion should be focused on is jesus mm-hmm. and then so why does so and i guess it also then kind of goes into more just the like i i always view the church as the people and I know the Catholic says like, well, the, the the church is like not just the people; it's the it's the system. It's the it's what Jesus and the apostles started, and and you need you need that authority figure. And I don't know why that authority figure has to be a this is the one true church, and we know this because of tracing it back through you know decades and whatnot. And why to me it's like is 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 the proper authority figures that we should submit to the ones that can just say, well, we are the six, the successors of this one line, or should it be the ones that at any given point in time are most effectively and truthfully representing the truth of the scriptures and, and, and kind of be, I guess, kind of like a market-based thing. Like I'm, I'm more sure. of like the, the, the right leaders to submit to are the ones that do the best job. And so the market, place of churches i guess sorts of i don't like i don't know i don't i don't want to conflate economics in the church too much but i don't know that's kind of where my my uh intuitions and observations are and so i want to get your response on that yeah that's a lot i would say this we know from the historical record that the early church held the bishop of rome in a higher esteem than the other bishops and that goes beyond peter who you know i mean sure it's not specifically stated in Acts that, you know, oh, Peter went to Rome and John went to Jerusalem and, you know, whatever, whatever else. But it was believed in the early church that Peter was the bishop of Rome. Um, we also know just from some kind of in passing references that Paul held Peter as sort of like the, the, the bellwether of the sort of the leader of the church. We know that Jesus kind of at least the way that the gospels are written seem to imply that Peter was the first among the apostles. 
sort of the leader of the the leader of the followers, so to speak. And so, and so for that reason, the and and the, I mean just the fact that we have like we have lineage like like a, like a like a like a lineage of popes. Like you can start with Peter and go to the next pope and the next pope and the next pope. Get all the way to Francis with like a a kind of break in the middle where the popes were in exile and it took a it took a little bit for them to, to determine who were the actual popes. I think that was like three hundred years in the in the Middle Ages. Sometime they were actually it's weird. The popes were actually living in Avignon, France, because they were exiled from Rome. Um, but they were still considered the Bishop of Rome. I don't know the I don't know the full history of it. But to me, the way that the early church structured itself is indicative of the way that the church was meant to be structured. I know that a lot of evangelical apologists like to say that oh, it, you know, oh, it was just there. There were evangelicals back there practicing sola scriptura. They were just suppressed by the church, and all of their all of their histories and records were burned. Uh, come on. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a great little conspiracy theory. It doesn't ring true to me. Um, there is no evidence of anyone believing so sola scriptura prior to like maybe the proto Protestant whose name they I can't remember. Yeah. I, I would tell yeah, you, you, they didn't even really have all the scriptures right away. Right. I mean, sure. when did the, I mean, they didn't, I mean, at first it was just, you know, like repeated word and stuff. Then they started to write things down, but I mean, it wasn't like they had, they didn't have the entirety of the New Testament until, I mean, whenever that what year was, right? So to say Solo Scripture existed, I mean, maybe there were people that had emphasis, like maybe they emphasized like wanting to, I don't know, but there might have been people that had those set, like temperaments or mm-hmm. opinions that like you could say those were like early people that had the same ideas that we have now on Solo Scriptura, but like you can't say Solo Scriptura existed before Scriptura existed, right? <laughs> I have kind of an unorthodox like ordering. I think that Revelation was actually one of the earliest New Testament books written up there with Mark uh, and that Luke was probably the last one written. I think Luke was actually a disciple of one of the apostles and I don't remember which. Huh. Yeah, it is different. I always thought that people had said that Revelation was one of the earliest. And- I mean, no, the, Revelation is one of the earliest. That's what I say too. I mean, one of the, or, or um, one of the latest. Actually, then, if you ask them something yeah, I thought John was one of the latest is what people were. Yeah. Yeah. Like Revelation might have been written in John's younger years while he was exiled and his gospel was written in maybe the later years. Um, if you ask like, if you ask theologians, I think that the common consensus with it was that Revelation was actually not written until about 120 and not actually written by John. I don't know if I buy that. Especially, I mean, obviously, especially if it's prophesying the fall of Rome in 70, that it couldn't have been written after 70. Um, but that's just me. What was it? What, was I, what, were, what were we talking about? Uh, you, you oh, right. Talking about, right. Yeah, early, like early, early, early scriptures and so solo scripture and things like that. Um, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the canon of scriptures was determined by tradition. It was, it was handed down. There's a reason that the Didache is not considered part of the new Testament, even though it might be reliable as a, as a source, because it was written within the first, you know, I, I, if you ask some people, it was written prior to the death of the last apostle. It still was not considered sacred scriptures because it's not, it just wasn't. Yeah. Um, there's like the letter of Clement who Clement would be the, the, I think the third Pope, like the second successor to Peter, to Peter. And that book was not considered scripture because, you know, Clement was not alive in the apostolic age. Uh, the letters of Paul were because, well, you, you, you know, Paul's conversion story. 
he and quickly is, allied with, yeah, with and, the apostles. And, yeah, and, and I would agree with you. And actually, I remember when I was early in my theological journey, that's actually the same answer that my reformed uh, pastors told me. As far as I was like, because I was questioning, well, why why is the Bible these books, and why aren't why don't we consider any writings after that to ever be scripture? And sure. that's the that's the answer they gave me was like, you know, well, these you know were written the the apostolic age, and you know these were the apostles, and they we believe that they had a special connect. They they what they wrote had a special inspiration that was for that time and you know, and, and that was decided upon. So, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, a, agreement on, on that and like where the scriptures come from. And I can see maybe where that's a good argument for why we should value the institution that brought us the scriptures. I think that's so, somewhat so compelling. The problem arises then when you get into um, a lack of uh, the like determined authority because then you have like Martin Luther who wanted to remove James and Jude and Hebrews and Revelation from the New Testament because it was inconvenient. Yeah. Um, and he didn't, he ended up not removing them because the theologians who he concerned with didn't, didn't agree with him, but they had no problem removing, you know, Maccabees and Judith and uh, the wisdom and the other, the other books from the old Testament that, I mean, the Bible that not the Bible, the, the, the old Testament, the version of the old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek old Testament that is used in most of the citations in the old Testament when, or the new Testament, like when Paul is quoting the scriptures, he's quoting from the Septuagint, which included the books of Maccabees and Judith and Ruth. Is Ruth, is Ruth one of them? Uh, no, I think, anyway, I think Ruth is part of the regular old Testament. I could okay. be wrong, but yeah. Yeah, all those all those books. That is the Bible that they're quoting from in the New Testament. You can't you can't like overlook that. Um, Martin Luther removed books from the Bible. It wasn't that the Catholics added them. Just because the Jewish rabbis settled on a different Torah does not mean that the Christian tradition is then null and void. And you know, I mean, the, the Jewish rabbis settled on the Torah that excluded the Septuagint. Might have even been after the Reformation. I'm not positive on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that makes somewhat sense. I, I guess I just, you know, for, for one, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's a somewhat compelling argument to say like, well, this is the institution that gave us the Bible. And so that has value. And I think it does have value, but I, I don't know that it means that the institution is given this special clout that makes it like the church, I guess. I don't know. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that maybe that's my upbringing and I just, view it conceptually different, but I've always just viewed like the church as like, that is just a broad term for just, you know, like Christians, Christians. And I don't yeah. view any one church as like, well, this is the church, but you know, it's not even just Catholics that do that. Lutherans do the same thing actually. And, and yeah. there's some others that do that too. Like, well, no, we are the church. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't know if I believe in, you know, a, like I believe in a singular church. I just think that it's like all those who are the body of Christ are, are, are the church. Um, now I can then within that recognize specific institutions that are historic and that played a certain role, but I don't know. Sometimes it just feels like there's a little bit of like, like, okay, are we respecting the status of men mm -hmm. to a point that might be committing some kind of error? Um, and I don't know, like for me, like the, the, the church argument is, is more compelling than the Pope argument. Cause I don't know why, like I agree with you that Peter was one of the most important apostles. I think that he's one of the most, like the apostles that had one of the most compelling uh, narratives in, in the gospel story. 
but I don't know if that means that, okay, so like you know, maybe back then he had special status and he was the Bishop of Rome. So that gave him a special prestige. But then why is then after him, we must now always refer to the Bishop of Rome as holy the, the, the most, the holy, the most special yeah. holy Bishop. But it's like that, that's where I find myself the most unconvinced. Now, sure. granted, granted, there are some people who have concerns about the Pope that I have heard Catholics give good answers for. Like, it's not true that the Pope is infallible. There are like, I know there's like only special circumstances mm-hmm. that have to be, you know, checked off for the Pope to say or put something out there that's infallible and that hasn't happened in a long time. It's happened, it's um, happened exactly twice. Yeah. Um, so, and thankfully, like, that where that's going to get really sticky and I, I hope that it never happens because it would just, it would, you know, it, it would be inconvenient to say the least. If a Pope were to ex ex cathedra, like declare something that Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox disagree on to be dogma. Um, so far that hasn't happened. Like the, the, the two or three times that the Pope has spoken ex cathedra, um, it's been stuff that has been basically settled in Catholic slash Orthodox theology for centuries, so it didn't really matter. And if if you believe if you believe the Catholic faith, then basically the Pope couldn't do that. He would be protected by the Holy Spirit from from declaring heresy as dogma. Uh, but holy shit, man! I mean, if if Pope Francis if Pope Francis just got a bug up his ass that was like. You know, oh yeah, what you know, what the hell? Uh the, the filioque, yeah, that's that's dogma, sure. I mean, what what would happen? Like <laughs> it would it would like render the entire the entire like ecclesi- uh as what's the word I'm looking for? Where uh ecumenical movement um okay, yeah. completely null and void. Um so I, I guess it I, I'm not I'm I don't know, I'm not super well versed in ecclesiology, but to me, like do you do do does your church does your like congregation believe in the Nicene Creed? I don't know how far back the that goes. I don't think. I, I, don't, I would imagine you don't recite it in service, but well, like, we don't recite it. And I'm trying to remember the night because the Nicene Creed was one of the ones that I thought Catholics even rejected at one point. But I don't know if they no. still do. Maybe but the Nicene Creed is what is what kind of caused the the split between Catholic and Orthodox. Right. Um, that's oh, so where maybe, the maybe I'm mixing up. So the Catholics. Uh, affirmed it, and the Eastern Orthodox didn't. Is that is that what happened? What happened? What happened was um, I'm getting the date, I'm getting the year wrong. I think it was like 1017 or something like that, a very long time ago. Um, the so the Nicene Creed, which was actually like the Niceno Constantinopolitan Creed. It's like Nice the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople wrote this creed, and it held for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then the Catholic Church, so. It starts out, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, um, blah, 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 blah. And then you go to, I believe in, I believe in Jesus' son, and then I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Uh, he proceeds from the Father. That's what it always said. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. And in this council, and it might have even been like a, like a local synod. It might not have been an entire church council, but they added, and the Son the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that is what caused this big split between East and West. 
And that's why I asked you earlier, like, which of those two things do you believe? Well, I'm on uh, I'm on the uh, Reformed Church of America website, and uh, they have they have the Nicene Creed there, the and the Son in parentheses at that part. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. So, I mean, I guess it's something that that we we do b- believe in. I don't know what the the emphasis there is about. I, this is part, probably something I need to learn more about. But sure, the the whole like. Does the spirit proceed from just the father, or is it the father and the son? I don't even know what I mean by proceed. Is it talking about the order in which they've appeared, or the way that they act? I'm not Kinda. sure. Yeah. Did so. If you read Genesis before anything was created, there was the the the, the, the word the the formless wasteland. No, that's John. Okay. Genesis. There was Genesis. a formless. There was a formless wasteland. Right. And this the the breath of God, the wind of God, the spirit of God flowed over the waters. And that is the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus when he was baptized. That was the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father. The problem is you get into the gospels and Jesus is like, I'm gonna send my spirit, the helper. Mm. And uh, if you look at Revelation, the water flowing from the Father and the Son uh, in the temple, um, right. the water symbolizing the Spirit. So there, there's there's two ways to see it. Like, is the Father the catalyst that 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 through which? No, I mean, I, I guess is the Son the catalyst through which the Father sends the Spirit, or are the Father and the Son both sending the Spirit? And for some reason, and I can't for the life of me figure out why it was so controversial and still is. Um, yeah, as far and, as, yeah. and as far as the Roman Catholic Church is concerned, um, the Eastern Orthodox are doctrinally sound and uh, like welcome to come back whenever they want. The only thing is they have to they have to accept the, the Pope. <laughs> 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 um, so back to back to your original point, I would say that the Church is one holy Catholic and apostolic, and that's like one definition of the Church. It is one meaning uh, it's the thing that it's like the thing that Jesus founded. Um, it's holy. Uh, I think that probably every church, even even freaking Robert Tilton's church, is probably holy in some sense. Um, Catholic, meaning universal, uh, sure. I mean, I don't see why Protestant Protestants aren't included in universal, especially post-Vatican II, where we have like fully recognized that Protestantism is a branch of Christianity. And then apostolic, that's where it, that's where it gets a little bit sticky because the Protestant Reformation resembled a, a break from that apostolic tradition. Right. And that's where, so that, I think that's probably why in Catholic like catechisms and things like that, we still call the Eastern Orthodox faith churches and not like offshoots or denominations or whatever. Um, whereas Protestant communities are communities and not churches. But then, I mean, it really, it gets into semantics. I mean, what is a church? Like, what does that mean? It really just means community. So. Yeah. And to me, it's like. Or I guess assembly technically is what it means. I, I guess I, I, I'm always looking at what is the fruit of, of, of this. And I, I care much more about individuals a lot than I do mm-hmm. like, you know, broad general groups. But even when I care about groups, it's like, listen, like there are individual Catholics I love. There are individual Catholics that I don't always uh, appreciate what they do. There's individual Catholic churches that I'm sure I could attend and be plugged into, fulfilled in. My family would be blessed. 
and that we would get along great in. And there's Catholic churches where I, it would not be a good fit. And I, I think that's, that's just the way I view it. It's like, it's not, like, I'm not anti-Catholic, but I guess I'm just looking at it from more of a, you know, I, I just, every, I view everything through a sort of decentralized lens. And so it, it tends to be a little bit in, I guess, a, a little bit, at odds with Catholicism in a sense, but there, I don't know, there's part of me that like, I just, the more I study church history, you know, there, there's part of me that's drawn to th- that tradition in history. So it's, it's this weird uh, love, hate, not even hate. It's like this weird, like, it's like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a loving relationship I have with Catholicism, but it's like, I don't know, like we're, we're, we're still in the, uh, I don't know, foreplay stage. <laughs> Or something I don't know. Like it's yeah. like it's like you know it's like hey we'll 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 commit as soon as I can like get past this one thing or something I don't know. Now now also try being me. I mean you see you've seen in the last hour and forty minutes or so my admiration and I don't want to say devotion to but like I, I'm I'm pretty dedicated to Catholic theology, but also I'm living with a man and I'm telling you we're not celibate. Like that's to me. That's that creates a whole lot of cognitive dissonance because, like Karen Ann was saying on your on your show recently, it's really tough to to be in a like hyper loving relationship. I, I like you know I mean if we if we were accepted into the into the fold, then I would be there in a heartbeat. My my partner's an atheist, but or at least agnostic. But uh, you know I mean I crave that, and yet I'm out of communion, and that hurts. Like. So I I, I kind of get where you're where you're coming from. Yeah, you know, in the the topic, you know, homosexuality <laughs> is. Yeah, I saw Drew's comment. Yes, yeah. the chastity belt. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. The, so my sister's bisexual, although she's never been with uh, someone of the same sex, but she's always been in the LGBT community, like from a very young age, like you know, high school age when, and mm-hmm. she's like uh, six years older than me. So uh, oh, wow. she, she she like. I was very influenced by her. Um, so she, I, so she was, so she was the one girl who came out as bisexual in the twenty teens and didn't like revert. Yeah, yeah. That was. I don't know if you remember, but well, you when, might have been she, young, but you, she, it was well, super she, trendy back then. Well, when she came out as bisexual, my my parents basically kicked her out of the house. So Ooh. that was that was an ordeal. Um, sure. So I've I've, I've flip flopped on this topic so much to the point where the cognitive dissonance that I have is is painful. And I can't imagine how much worse it must be for you, who is not just like grasping with it in a theoretical sense, but grasping with it in a, like, it is your life kind of sense. And I mean, for starters, I just think like, no matter what, you know, like for the rest of the conversation talking about this, no matter what, I think the church has been very, has missed the mark as far as the treatment of people in the GSM communities and, 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 you know, gay people and, even trans people, it's like they, they have, and I, I I can see a little bit of like, all right, well, do you if you view something as sin, do you want people who are living an openly sinful lifestyle to be in the church? And like I, I like I'm trying to be charitable to their position to see where they're coming from, but it's like, all right, well, if you need to draw some some kind of line, maybe that's a conversation to have. But the stigmatism and the dehumanization that very often has occurred. From 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 the outside looking in and seeing how, I mean, looking at how my parents reacted to my sister. Like I don't think the way my parents reacted to my sister was Christ-like. 
mm-hmm. you know, in the least. Yeah. Uh, if if you know, if my child came out as gay or trans, my my solution to that wouldn't be to not in my house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's just that's foreign to me as someone who so deeply wants to imitate Christ. Um, mm-hmm. So that that has to be put out there, I think, from the get go. No matter what, that uh, no matter what, to me, the church has missed the mark. That said, I struggle. This is probably the part of my theology that I struggle with the most is trying trying to reconcile this because mm-hmm. I, I, so a lot of the arguments people give from scripture against homosexuality I find to be kind of shallow and unconvincing because I feel like a lot of the I talked about this with Karen Ann. A lot of the scriptures are not condemning like what you are doing. They're condemning homosexuality yeah. in the context of like, it was like violent gang rape or pagan worship or, uh, you know, people like the, the one in, uh, was it Corinthians? I think where Paul talks about people leaving their natural relations with one sex for another was in mm. the context of like, they were, uh, of lust. It was like, they were lusting after the same sex and leaving their relationship. So I was like, so even that to me seems to be like, it's not really talking about somebody who like, you know, wants to be in a loving relationship. And it kind of goes against just like my intuitions and observations, which is like someone like you who is, you know, uh, in a committed relationship. And like I said before, I judge things by the fruits, right? And it's like, if the fruits of something are good, well, like, okay, can a bad tree bear good fruit? If someone's bearing good fruit in their life, I have a hard time just as a person being like, well, you know, you're living in sin. It just doesn't seem to compute. But then I also wonder, like, there's also sometimes where I look at the LGBT community and, and individuals, you know, within it. And I, I can empathize with where they're coming from because I think it's kind of reactionary. But it's like, mm-hmm. There, there's something there about like God, like submitting to God and trusting God. And I don't know if I had same sex attraction, what I would do if I would feel convicted to be like, okay, I have this uh, attraction to people of the same sex, but you know, I don't know like what would I feel convicted that I have to submit that to God and put God first, knowing that like, cause like, and I'm sure you'll understand where I'm coming from here. Sometimes people who aren't Christians don't get this at all because they're like, well, if it doesn't hurt anybody, who cares? Well, there's a lot of things in the <laughs> yeah. Bible that are sin that aren't hurting yeah. people. So it goes deeper than that. But then it's like, you know, we don't have any explicit, you know, okay, same sex marriage and loving committed, you know, Christians who are gay is explicitly condemned. We have these, I don't know, maybe like half dozen passages that talk about homosexuality in completely different contexts. And then, yeah, I've rambled on enough. Let me me give you a chance to to chime in here, but that's, that's where I'm coming from is like, there's, there's a lot of me that sympathizes with like the position you're in. And I think Mm -hmm. the church misses the mark and the arguments against it are often weak. But then I feel like the part where I hesitate to fully just say, Oh, I think that, homosexuality should be you know like like loving committed uh monogamous homosexual relationships should be embraced by the church is just that little bit of like are we putting our own desires and what like oh i just want to if it's not hurting anybody i should be able to do whatever i want and screw god if he tells me otherwise that's where i wonder like is there a danger in that and i wonder i, I said this with karen ann 
I don't know if it's maybe it's one of those things that's like the Bible condemned it because there's a general sense where it like in a in a general sense it might not be conducive, but is it one of those things that like it's a personal conviction and people have to be free to follow that? I don't know. Like I'm really as you can tell from me rambling now for mm-hmm. however many, many minutes it's been, I'm extremely divided and unsure. So just coming from a, from a Catholic standpoint, uh, and this is not necessarily my personal view. Yes, there are those passages that you've cited, that Karen Ann cited, that um, are maybe, maybe not easily refutable. I don't know. I don't know the history there. If you read Pope John Paul II's series of, I believe they were lectures or sermons, uh, collectively called The Theology of the Body. Um, it gives a pretty good picture of Catholic morality, Catholic moral theology as it surrounds sex and sexuality. And essentially, the the purpose of sex is is twofold. It is unification of the couple within within matrimony and procreation, and those two things cannot be separated. And so, Catholics condemn birth control for the same reason that they condemn homosexuality right? Um, and for the same reason that they condemn sex outside of marriage. Uh, it's all of a piece. If it's not playing both of those purposes, unifying the, the couple and being open to at least procreation, obviously, you know, there's some people who are sterile and can't have kids, but in, the miracles have happened, I guess. If it's not serving both of those purposes, then it's illicit. Uh, and it gets in a lot of, into a lot of natural law and things like that, that I'm not, I'm not, I'm I'm not well versed in enough to really explain it. But so the, the Catholic, the Catholic, I guess, argument against gay sex per se is not a biblical one, but a philosophical one, um, Mm. which stands to reason. I mean, Pope John Paul II was not a theologian. He was a philosopher. Um, so it makes sense that he would come at it from a philosophical standpoint, but he's the, he's sort of the, the one who laid this all out in a less hyper-moralistic way of saying it. So that's kind of where we're at right now. I, I don't, I don't know what the future holds for Catholic theology. Um, I like, uh, so like, obviously selfishly, I really hope that they kind of evolve, uh, and come around to my point of view, which is unification or procreation maybe. But on the other hand, or even like, I mean, is it, is it necessarily like, it's not that you're unwilling. It's just, it's almost like in this case, it's like a couple that's sterile, I guess you should sure. say. It's not that's like, you're, it, like, you know I mean? Like, but, it's not like, like if you're doing it with like, okay, well, I mean, if it was somehow possible, I would, but I can't. So it's not going to, Yeah, I don't the, know. The pro- I mean, the other problem too, is that, um, I don't like the, I don't like progressive Catholics. Like <laughs> I, I, I want the church to go backwards, not forwards. So like, it's, it's a, it's a little bit tough for me because when you start liberalizing doctrine like that, you also are introducing, you know, playing John Lennon's Imagine as a communion yeah. hymn and things like that, that I think corrupts the church. Yeah. So, so uh, if, if one wasn't, you know, if they weren't so wed together, progressivism doctrinally and progressivism, uh, just ecclesiology, ecclesiologically and, Reed, and... Yeah, Reed made the yeah, same challenge to me when I was on his podcast because I talked about how like I, I almost kind of made accidentally this steel man argument for progressive Christianity. He's like, well, how can you say that, that you want the church to evolve and their theology to grow? That sounds like 
progressive theology and you don't like that, do you? It's like, well, no, I hate it. But it's like, I don't know. Like, I want them to progress in the ways I want them to and not in yeah, the dumb ways. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I don't know, man. I mean, I, I almost hope that my idea that Eastern Orthodoxy is on the ascendant and, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy is a lot more, uh, is, is a lot more about the mystical than the, than the doctrinal. I, obviously they have the same, they have the same moral doctrines and things like that as in Western Christianity. They just don't focus on it quite as much. I don't think, I think my microphone slipped. So I, I still hear you. You're good. Okay. Good. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, the other thing is then like, it gets into like, what is sin? And that's where I always like to try to bring the conversation back. To Why don't you bring that up what, seven minutes before we're over? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I can go. I don't know if you have to go in at two hours flat. We can go. I can no. go a little bit over if you have to. I mean, I got a little bit. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, I don't want to be like, okay, two hours. Of, you know, <laughs> bye everybody. Um, you know, I feel like uh, what like like what what makes sin bad even? Because like I think mm-hmm. the textbook definition of sin is kind of easy. Like sin is like doing like breaking God's commands, right? I mean, I think that's the pretty easy definition of of sin is rebellion against God. I mean, if you disagree, go ahead. I mean, that's that's my answer. I, Maybe your answer is different. Sure. I don't see that as sin. Uh, well, okay. That is certainly sin from the sort of legalistic uh, point of view. I, to me, I think we actually talked about this last time I was on. And this is, this is, this is, going kind of with Jordan Peterson's vision as well. Um, sin literally means missing the mark. And sure. that can be, that can certainly, I mean, if I, if I tell a lie and it's a situation where I should have told the truth, then that's sinful. But also if I tell the truth simply because the commandment is not to lie, then I might've just given up Anne Frank's family. And, right. and so I don't see, and I, it, obviously that was argumentum at it at Hitlerum, but uh, we'll just go with it. Um, I I don't see necessarily sin as breaking the commandments, but as doing what I'm not supposed to do or not doing what I am supposed to do, and that can sure. that can that can manifest in spiritual life, but it can also manifest in just regular life. I mean, you know, if I'm if if I go too far over two hours on this call then I will be neglecting my relationship with my partner. And to me, that's, that's a form of sin. Um, because, you know, I mean, he's going to want to go to bed and we haven't really had time to sit and chit chat and do our kind of normal, you know, day-to-day life thing. And the fact that, you know, I'm going to be spending most of October traveling means that we're like, I've been super busy trying to, trying to backfill my, my interview quiver so that I have episodes to put out throughout October. So I haven't had a free night to just sit and veg in a long, long time. So that to me is a little bit sinful because it's not fulfilling my obligation to my partner. It's also neglecting my work, which, you know, these are the people that pay my salary. So, you know, is that, is that, is that sin? Maybe it is. I mean, I have an obligation to them. I've signed, signed on to, to work for them and to, and to produce a certain amount of work each week. I think or, Jesus you know, said it was a sin to not provide for your family, which is kind of in the same same vein of sure. what you're talking yeah. about. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, but I think even on the deeper level, it's like, why is sin sin? Like, why does it, what makes sin bad? And I think it's... And, 
Oh, go ahead. You want to take that? Well, I mean, for me, it's like it's the twofold, like you're breaking those two most important commandments when you sin. You're either not loving God or you're not loving your neighbor, yeah. or really both. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're loving God, you love your neighbor. If you're loving neighbor, mm-hmm. you're loving God. So they're kind of like, they're not really separate, but they're just kind of like different sides of the same coin, I think. But I think that's what makes sin bad is that you're, 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 you're missing the mark or, or violating those two certainly uh, commandments. And then, so then it gets, but when I, so like when I start off with that conceptualization of okay, this is what sin is, okay, then it's like, all right, well then the philosophical argument, which I know the Sola Scriptura people get, you know, autistically screeching about the, you can't, you know, it's scripture or nothing. Don't bring philosophy into it. But it's just like, I don't know. Like, I don't think reading the Bible should mean turning my brain off. You know what I mean? I just, I just mm-hmm. don't, you know, if again, it goes back to the, the good fruit and bad fruit. Um, if I don't think sin can bear good fruit, can it? So if, if people are missing the mark, if they're, in, you know, if they're not loving their neighbor and they're not loving God, there should be, you know, bad fruit that's that's being produced from that. So if if someone is in a same-sex relationship and bearing good fruit, I don't know how to square that with the idea that it is universally sinful. I feel like, you know, I feel like I, I, I'm leaning more, like I'm still, you know, this is me kind of like, you know, this is my own, like, like, uh, stream of consciousness right now. Like I'm literally like working it out as we're talking yeah. and still figuring it out. But I kind of feel like it's one of those things where like it is a general behavior that is probably wrong for most people. But it doesn't Unless mean it's universally wrong for everyone. I guess is where I'm like is where I kind of am leaning right now. You also have to take into consideration the goodness of the fruit is probably subjective. And I know that that's the, you know we're kind of allergic to that. Uh, but you know, I mean, I like apples and you might not, but that's, that's not even, that's not even what I'm talking about. I mean, if, if I'm having trouble coming up with a reason that my loving relationship might be bearing good fruit for me, but bad fruit for somebody else, other than that some Christians might be scandalized by it. But, you know, I mean, if, if, yeah, I don't know. I'm having trouble coming up with an example of of a the only of a, the only the only bad fruit I can think of where it's good for you but bad for somebody else is like I had to see two men kissing in public, right? And it's like, so, <laughs> and we don't kiss in public either, so that's not even a thing, really. Like, uh, that's I mean, we're very modest when it comes to that kind of thing, which is not a it's not a Christian thing. It's just we're you know we're we're kind of we're Midwesterners, so it's like <laughs> right <laughs> kissing in public is weird. Um, but uh. I don't know. I'm trying to think of of like something that would be considered controversial, controversial, where some people might think it's sinful and other people might think it's not. And the fruit that is born is up to interpretation. I mean, I I, I, just, I don't know. Like, yeah. like, okay. So there's a there's a Episcopalian church near me that like flies the rainbow flag and they've got like this big marquee out front that's like rainbow and all are welcome and all that stuff. And I've never been there, but it would not surprise me if they had, you know, drag queens with banners as like their procession. Um, is that good fruit? I don't know. I mean, that really feeds into some pretty toxic cultural things. But also, I mean, trans people need a church too, you know? Yeah. So I don't... Well, it's like, I feel like, so like, and, and you know, it's kind of like this. Uh, Chris made a comment. It's not about the effect it has on other people. Um, you know, I don't know, 
that that's really what we're saying. What we're saying is that if it's it, it well, I mean, it, it, it sin. I think what we're talking about is that it should. If, if something sinful, it should a be hurting your relationship with God, and it's probably, you know, it, I mean, maybe there are some things that hurt your relationship with God, but don't hurt other people. I guess that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's like, look at the praxis of it. Like, if if the church's treatment of the LGBT community is keeping them from uh, being able to, like know Christ and and receive, you know, especially if you're a Catholic and it's about like receiving the Eucharist and participating in that tradition. Well then, you know, what, I, I don't know. It's just, there's something there I can't square, but I also, you know, I, I do understand again, like, and I think you would agree with me. It's not, there are things that are sinful that, that don't hurt other people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's not, that's why we always call libertarianism a thin philosophy because it's, there are things that, you know, like, like, you know, you can be a perfect libertarian and still be a shitty person and you yeah. can, you can not be hurting people and not taking their stuff and still be falling short in some, in some way. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just feel like if, if someone's engaging in sin, I don't know if it's my job to be the one to like gatekeep them out of the church and say, you have to change this before you are part of the church. I just feel like, I don't know, my personality is always to let the Holy Spirit and Christ and people's own personal mm-hmm. journey lead them to those conclusions. You know, I if think, they're hurting if they're hurting somebody, that's different. Like if you're hurting somebody, I think that's where we're supposed to intervene. But if you're mm-hmm. not hurting anybody, um, but I know there's different things in Galatians and stuff about people living in sin. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's a rabbit hole we could, you know, that we could go down for, I don't want to hold you up too much longer, but we could go round and round on it. And I just, I I don't know. My, my intuitions are in complete uh, conflict with my, uh, my, my general Mm. reading of scripture where, you know, I I do think that, and I think it is fair to say there are some, you know, I think there are probably, you might agree with me here. If you don't push back on it, I think there are definitely examples within the LGBT LGBT community of people in relationships that are definitely not bearing good fruit. But I think that's also true of straight couples. So it, it, it kind of goes both, kind of cuts both ways there. Sure. Uh, well, and um, Chris, once again, makes a pretty good point that Chris, sin, sin is that which separates us from God. Yes. Um, and so in that case, is there... I don't even know that hurting someone is necessarily the sort of standard for what is sin. Um, obviously, we shouldn't hurt people and we shouldn't take their stuff because we're good libertarians. But uh, is there an instance where aggressive violence might be what we're called to do? I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't know. That's a, that's a total spitball. Um, certainly, the Old Testament's full of it, right? Um, yeah, and so that I mean that gets me back into my into my subjective morality stuff, which I think we talked about probably last time, or at the very least we talked about before. Well, there's uh, definitely a lot in the New Testament, you know, like where they talk about like there are certain things that are subjective, right? Like if it was like the whole debate over like eating certain meats and stuff. And oh, sure. Yeah. Felt well, ritualistic laws, I, I would probably not not uh, like, I mean, in the Catholic, in the Catholic faith, we have a long, long tradition, probably centuries, maybe even millennia of not eating meat on Fridays. And, you know, that's not, well, no, you know what, if you ask some Catholics, that's a sin. Like, 
it is sinful not to follow the church's tradition of not eating meat on Fridays, or now I think it's just Fridays during Lent. Um, you know, if Jesus came back today, he would go to those Catholics and eat meat in front of them, just like he did work on the Sabbath in front of the Pharisees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Monica Perez is my favorite person to listen to. Uh, she she throws in these sort of just like pop Catholicism things sometimes. Like uh, she's like she says things like, "Oh, I, I'll use I'll use vulgarity. I love saying the fuck the the f word, um, but I never swear. Uh, so I never so she like never says damn it." but she'll say fuck all day long. It's really funny. Like, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't say, um, I don't say like G damn it or anything like that, yeah, but, sure. I'll, but I'll say F I'll, I'll, you know, I'll use the F bomb all day long. So yeah. I you guess it's a little, a little weird. If I'm not supposed to say that on your show, sorry. Oh, I don't, I don't, it's not even like, I'm not offended when other people do it, but I just feel like, like when, I, when I accidentally say it, I don't know. There's just something in me that cringes and I feel bad for doing it. Sure. But I wanted to talk a little bit before we go. So your show is called Biblical Anarchy, or that's the subtitle of it. I've been a little bit like skeptical of political libertarianism lately. And the I think the final nail in the coffin, and I'm not I'm not severing my ties with the LP at this point, but I went to this training event last weekend. My God, it was a it was like Kara Schultz, who I love to death. She puts on this, these great training sessions, but the people there, you you hear the stereotypes of libertarians where um, we're like we're we're, we're like hyper intelligent, uh, but a little socially awkward and not very good at selling our ideas. These people were not hyper intelligent; they were they were dumb. And some of them, the ones that were a little bit on the smart side, were just as blue pilled as could possibly be. I, there's one lady there who she and I I I would consider myself pro life, but like I understand that there's much debate in libertarianism over it. I think probably abortion would exist in a free market. But this lady was, um, her reason for being pro-choice was that essentially all, every time a woman is impregnated is an act of aggression because the man chooses to ejaculate in her. She doesn't choose to be ejaculated into. And that just blew my mind that people, <laughs> I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of arguments uh, in favor of pro-choice. That's, that's the most absurd thing I had ever heard. And I know that there are some feminist scholars who believe that all consensual sex is rape. Yeah. I just didn't know that they actually existed in the wild. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what my future vis-a-vis the Libertarian Party is. Um, I'm going to stick it out with the Mises Caucus at least through the the convention next year because I want to go to the convention because it's, it's a ton of fun. But I've been really thinking lately. There, So Curtis Yarvin, are you familiar with him, Menches Moldbug? Yeah. He recently started talking about this book. Uh it's I think it's called like Oimsville or something like that. It's in it's it's a German book, so the the title is tough to pronounce. But the main character in that is someone who has so completely and thoroughly separated himself from political ideology that he is called an anarch. He's not an anarchist. Like so when you think of like monarchist, it's someone who believes in monarchy. But when you think of the monarch, that's the actual person who's like at the head of the of the monarchy. So sure. this anarch may or may not believe in anarchism, but he is certainly his own ruler because he's just an anarch. He's like a monarch, but an anarch. And that's very appealing to me. And so like yesterday we were talking, I had Jason Stapleton on my show. Uh, the interview will be coming out in a few weeks. 
Um, Unless you become a premium subscriber of James show, in which case you can watch it now. So yeah, true. Which Blackbirdpodcast.com. Blackbirdpodcast.com. Sign up $7 a month, $70 a year. Uh, what yeah, was his name? Ship right. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, I think, well, yeah. So I think that's kind of what Jason Stapleton and Matt Erickson and um, Curtis Yarvin to an extent, I think that's kind of what they're all kind of driving at is that like we need to, and the agorists to an extent, I, you, I actually am wearing the t-shirt right now. I have like, I have an agorist bent to me. My podcast was originally called urban agorist. Urban agorist yeah. Um, I was, I was very aligned with agorism a year ago. I was very turned off by the ideology though. Um, I don't think that black and gray markets are going to take down the state anytime soon. Um, Sal Mayweather is fond of saying that the, that they brought down the USSR, but that's, I mean, Sure. Yeah. Maybe they had a, maybe they had a little bit of an I think, impact. I think it was, the USSR it was, brought down the USSR. Yeah. But it was perestroika. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> um, but on the other hand, those people who were engaging in black and gray market activity, they were freer than anybody else in the USSR. And I think that Jason and Matt have a point that, you know, if you're, if you're wealthy enough that the, the state is irrelevant to you, then who cares? That's a very selfish way of seeing things. I was going to say, it, it's kind of contrary to my Christian sentiments, but I get where they're sure. coming from. I just don't know that... I don't know that it tracks even... I don't know that p- political anarchy, you know, as a political ideology rather than as a lifestyle, I don't know that it even tracks with the Bible. I think that, you know, when we look at the way that Christians and even um, sort of the ideal Jewish state interacted with the powers that be. It wasn't that they were forming political movements. It was that they were forming separatist movements, that they just were completely outside of the political realm. I want to know your thoughts on that. And maybe, uh, you know, I mean, we're way over time, so maybe we'll dig a little bit deeper into it on my show. When, uh, when, are, when are we getting back together? Next? Tuesday, Monday? Yeah, yeah. Day? so in a couple of days. Yeah. But preliminarily, do you have any thoughts on that? So, I mean, there was kind of two things there. One, I mean, as far as like the L the LP versus agorism, I've I've kind of been on both sides of that too. And sure. I know I know like I know how Jose, if he's watching this either now or later, is going to cringe when I say this. But I am one of those people that go, why not both? I know he hates it, but to me, it's like I don't know. Like, and even like I'll add, hey, uh, wealth, power, and influence. I can do all three of those. I can do all three at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what's going to bring down the state and usher in a libertarian society. Um, sometimes I even like to say that, you know, I don't want to be engaged in the Nirvana fallacy. So who knows if libertarian society is even possible? Maybe we're just doomed to a never ending process of damage control and doing the best we can at any given time. But that kind of leads into the second kind of question you asked there, which is, you know, a, a little bit. I mean, I feel like we always have to push for the ideal and also be content to realize that like, you know, it's kind of like you shoot for the, uh, shoot for the moon. And if you miss, you land among the stars. It's like, if you, if you shoot high and you miss, it's better to shoot high and miss than to shoot medium and miss. Right. Um, I, I feel like, you know, kind of like the abolitionist movement, they didn't say, you know, slavery is bad, but we'll, we'll, we'll be content. You know, what we're going to advocate for is that slaves get certain rights or slaves get, I don't know, like, voting privileges or they get you know it was like no like slavery is immoral and a human blight and it needs opposed you know vehemently and 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 loudly and then slavery didn't 
just like, you know, even the Civil War didn't cause slavery to really end functionally overnight. It was kind of a pushing the ideal, but it kind of fizzled out and slowly died. It died a slow death in the West. And so I, I kind of looked that way towards the state. We're like, well, I probably can't end the state in my lifetime or my child's lifetimes, but all we can do is keep pushing towards those truths and hoping that eventually they they get there. Um, you know, and waking as many people up as possible was part of that because I think culture, politics and culture kind of do go back. Like they, they're not, it, politics isn't downstream of culture in a way that like, Politics never affects culture, but I do think that the culture matters more to the, you know, affecting the political outcomes than politics matter to affecting the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, as for, I don't, I don't know. This is as far as like can was your were you basically saying you don't know if the Bible and Christianity can really be compatible with with anarchism or no? I don't think they can be compatible with statism, and from by statism I mean politics in general. Like, what do you mean? So I used to ask myself, who would Jesus vote for in this election? And I am now firmly in the uh, convinced that the answer to that question is nobody. Nobody. Because, well, I because I think that the Christ, the like the Christian position or whatever is to be completely separate from, from politics. So, yeah, okay. including, so I, I, I see what voting. you're saying now. So um, I view what the Mises caucus is doing and my limited involvement in the LP is not exactly doing politics. Like it kind of is, but it kind of isn't like I'm not doing politics. Like in the sense of like, I want to vote in the right rulers to mm-hmm. usher in my preferred society and push my worldview on people. It's, it's more of a, I'm being oppressed. I'm fighting against my slave master and I'm going to use any tool uh, that's available to me. And I don't like violence, so I don't want to lead a violent revolution against the state because I know that's bloody. And I know that's also that violent revolutions have often just led to even worse states. You know, the the people who overthrow one violent state become the next violent state. I'm kind of with you that agorism only gets you so far. You know, agorism isn't going to end the state. It can be useful for affecting the culture and preserving your own individual liberty. But but yeah, you take those two things off the table. It's like, what's left? Well, I like what the Mises Caucus does because it um, it kind of answers both those things. It uses politics in a counterway. Like it's kind of like you know, agorism is counter economics to me. The right way, and this is what Karen Ann said in her in my podcast with her, which was that the Libertarian Party is really an anti political party. It's what what it was founded to be, at least. And I think that the Mises Caucus is trying to 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 revive that idea that it's it's really like it's not engaging in politics; it's engaging in counter politics in a way. It's not about winning elections and trying to, you know, pass the right amount of laws and get the right people into office to to win freedom on the ballot. You know what I mean? Like it's not what it's about. It's about I think primarily what the Mises caucus is about, what the libertarian party should be about is about engaging the culture. Um, So it's kind of like using the, to me, it's actually, it it reminds me of when the Bible says what the enemy intended for evil, God will use for good. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to take what our slave masters have intended to be evil and to be used against us and weaponize it against them. So, but we can definitely get it more into that on your, your podcast and stuff. That's my not so brief answer (laughs) some of those questions. Yeah, all right. Let's get out of here.
Yeah. I'm going to, I'm uh, plug, to go, uh, go sit down on a more comfortable chair. Yes, yeah, same here. Uh, <laughs> thanks, everybody, for uh, for watching, for uh, um, tuning in. Hope you enjoyed yeah. the conversation. Shout, uh, out Minnesotans in, shout out to my Minnesotans in the audience, Chris and Sam. Yeah. Uh, I think there maybe was one. Of, oh, Robin was here, too. She's from Missouri, and Drew is from there, too. So all the Midwesterners, everybody turned out. That was great. Yeah. And then definitely, you know, make sure you're subscribed to James' show because although if you're if you're a premium subscriber, you'll be able to watch probably by next like Wednesday or Thursday or something. But if you're uh, not, it'll probably take a, I guess like you're usually like what like a week out or something like Dude, that. Dude, our thing is not going to publish for a while. Um, okay. I told you, I'm told you because I'm traveling all throughout October. That's like uh, I'm kind of backfilling everything. So I'm going to publish. This the audio from this, with your permission, of course, on ten fifteen, and then ten twenty is when your interview on my show is going to be published. Oh wow! So, okay. uh, there's going to be there's going to be a little Include, bit of a gap. What, what for the premium subscribers too, or just for the no resume? premium subscribers? They'll get it. Uh, they'll get it right after we're done. Okay, uh, which I think Tuesday. Okay, so Monday. if you want to wait a whole month, you can do that. Or if you want to, you know, not be a cheap <laughs> ass and can give James, you know, seven dollars a month. And really, uh, I mean, look, just give me the seven dollars and and unsubscribe. That that'll that'll get you in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, James, thanks for coming on. It's always a uh, it's always a pleasure. I mean, I feel like you know the, these conversations are entertaining. I don't know if we can ever solve some of these things. They're kind of like 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 I said no. earlier. They're it's an archaeological dig, and it's just like it's just fun to have people on and have these conversations. And uh, I don't know, just kind of like bounce ideas off each other and and work more towards coming up with a more like uniformed unified theory of reality mm-hmm. the world philosophy and and religion so thanks for coming on i appreciate it everyone subscribe to his show obviously if you could subscribe to my show too i'm i'm not going to uh say, <laughs> say say nay to that so uh, thanks everybody and enjoy the rest of your nights bye all right thanks for tuning in thanks again to jacob for having me on his show i hope you look forward to our conversation which will be episode number 68 of blackbird coming out in a few days don't forget you can subscribe to blackbird at blackbirdpodcast.com slash subscribe you can sign up for the free option with your email address i highly recommend doing that at the very least because then you'll make sure that you never miss an episode and if you would like to get that premium content where you're getting these early episodes all of my interviews uncut unedited for the most part the day that they happen, sign up for one of the paid options. It's only $7 a month. I think you can afford that. And it'll help me keep my lights on, keep my uh, production going, and help me pay the bills. However you support the show, though, I really appreciate it. And I will see you on the next episode of Blackbird. Until then, live free. (laughs) 